the gospel truth and so i'm excited for these guys to jump on and let's see what they are about what's going on fellas how y'all doing doing all right all right glad to have you guys and i'm excited for this one as the audience is too and so we're not gonna waste any more time man sean i want you guys to go ahead sean matt i want you guys to give a quick introduction to yourself man tell them what you do blogs youtube channel whatever it is man let them know what you do all right start with uh matt go ahead let them know what you do man all right, so I'm, my name is Matt Slick. I'm old, 66. Uh, I've been doing apologetics since 1980. Got a Master's of Divinity. Uh, been doing radio for 18 years. Written several books, uh, numerous debates. Uh, I just defend the Christian faith and uh, can tackle all kinds of topics. Really enjoy defending my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what I do. You can check out my website at carm.org, uh, C-A-R-M.org. It's had over 156 million visitors, so we're active. The site's 20, almost it'll be 28 years old coming um, this October. So it's been around a while. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, apologetics website on the net, and. Uh, I think that's it. And my real name is Slick, and you can call me Reverend Slick if you want, even though it just doesn't sound good. But that's who I am. All right, Matt. Thank you so much, man. All right, Sean, go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, man. I'm Sean Griffin. I'm with Kingdom in Context, and uh, I have been a believer since 1997. Um, I've been doing YouTube and trying to talk about and profess the scriptures and the truth of the Almighty and His wonderful Son, or Messiah, since, since 2018. And so that's been a really fun journey. Um, I'm 43. I love the Lord. And uh, I like talking about the word. I jokingly call myself a word nerd because I, I study it all the time. I can't get enough of it. And, uh, and I hope this is a fruitful conversation. All right. Thank you guys once again for the introductions. And so we're going to jump into this. So the way we're going to do this is that we're going to, I'm going to allow you guys about you know five to 10 minutes up 10 minutes to go ahead and lay out your your position concerning the trinity and then we're going to go right into just open discussion between you two being able to just dive into it and dig, deal with the different issues there and then we're going to have about a 30 minute q a after that so audience get your questions in as these guys reverse to through the conversation all right start with you uh sean uh why don't you go ahead and spend about five to ten minutes just laying out your your position concerning the trinity sure yeah, ultimately, I don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, I believe it was a, a doctrine that was comprised over a couple hundred years by um, early church bishops who were mainly interested in philosophy. Um, and I, I believe ultimately that Almighty is a singular case word. Um, I think it's uh, very distinctive all throughout Scripture that the Father is the God over his son, Yeshua. Yeshua is also called a God uh, by the Father, but it's in context of his rulership being you know, given the title of Lord of Lords and King of Kings and the High Priest of the Covenant of Israel uh, for the purpose of the millennial reign, which I do not think is here yet. So I guess some people would call me a futurist or a premillennialist. Um, so I, I do see a, a very distinct and clear hierarchy in Scripture as far as the Father always having more authority than the Son, 
uh, even pre-incarnate, so before Yeshua was born uh, of, for, through the womb of Mary, um, I do believe he existed um, with the Father, even before the world began, like, like it's mentioned in John 17. I, I do believe that both of them existed before the world began. I just don't think the Son has ever been equal in authority to the Father. Um, as far as the, you know, the, the three main statements of the classic Trinitarian doctrine, that they're co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial, um, I also don't believe in the co-substantial concept because it's um, it's undefined and it actually comes from philosophy. It doesn't come from the scriptures. I think the scriptures are already defined the substance of the Father and the Son. And uh, we can talk about that as the conversation unfolds. So to me, um, I grew up being told the Trinity was true. And I, I, used to, I used to think it was true. I used to give the analogy to folks of a computer. I would tell people that, you know, oh, they all work together and they have to work together and they're all, you know, um, functionary as a part of, of salvation, the father's like the hard drive, the son is like the monitor that displays the information and the Holy Spirit's the power cord that makes it, you know, makes it all happen. And, um, and that was like a crude little analogy I would give when I was younger. But the more I've been studying the Bible in my adult life, uh, the more I realized that, um, that it's just not in there. And, what, and then when I really started studying the origins of, of the Trinity itself, I realized that it actually was a philosophical construct about trying to define the co-substantial idea. And they were even arguing over the homoousius uh, concept at different councils in the fourth century. Um, and that argument brought all of its semantic language and all of its argumentative language directly from philosophy. And that, that idea of about the essence, um, this undefined incorporeal nature of essence, um, that, that traces all the way back to the days of the ancient Greeks, to Aristotelian logic and philosophy as well as even back to Hinduism, where it's the, uh, the Om, the O-H-M. Uh, the Om is about the essence of the, the creator Brahma to the Indians and how it was such an important thing to understand, to articulate, and to tap into. But it was also um, a special type of ontology that, that uh, the Hindu god shared. And, Bra and Brahma was a, a three-faced god that shared one essence of being. So I, I really feel like uh, some of these early church bishops, they, um, they were more interested in philosophy, as stated in many of their writings, uh, than they actually were pulling these definitions and these ideas from Scripture itself. So I'm definitely not a solas scriptura. I'm definitely a solo scriptura. I think that we can all read and learn through the Scriptures, through the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, Father, you know, because that, that is now in the, in the possession of the Son of God, as Acts 2 tells us. And so he can give the Spirit out to us to lead us in discipleship and help us understand his word as we refresh our minds with the washing of the water of the word continually throughout our life. So that's my stance, and uh, I'll turn it over to Matt. All right, cool. Thank you, Sean. All right, Matt, uh, go ahead and lay out your, your thoughts on the Trinity. Yeah, I've, I've heard many people say over the years that it's a philosophy and they got it from over here, they got it from over there. Um, and yet none of them have ever uh, refuted uh, the systematic approach that is used upon the scriptures to bring the doctrine to bear. And uh, I can help out with that. Um, when people want to use the argument that philosophy is bad, uh, then they're doing what's called guilt by association. Uh, philosophy is bad, therefore it came out of philosophy, so therefore the Trinity is bad. And that's uh, guilt by association, poisoning the well. It's also a logical fallacy, a genetic fallacy. You know, philosophers came up with it, so therefore it's not true kind of a thing. And it's just, it's not good logic. It's not good thinking. It's not good apologetics. The issue is what does the scripture say? Not was, does, not what does 
does one person say philosophers said and say that the philosophers did this and say that they got it from Brahma or whoever, whatever. These are all things that a lot of the, uh, sorry, but I got to say it, the cults just say when they denounce the Trinity. Uh, the scriptures are the final authority. I, I hold to Sola Scriptura that it's the final authority in everything it addresses, and I'll be using scripture. The Trinity is arrived at using logic, and I hope that logic is permitted here. If he uses if-then statements, then he's presupposing uh, the universality of the laws of logic, which we can get into, oh, dare I say, philosophy and the one and the many, but we won't do that tonight. But uh, nevertheless, the Bible says there's only one God in all existence, all place, all time, Isaiah 43, 10, 44.6, 44.8, 45.5. There's only one God. God doesn't even know of any other God. He said there's none like him. Well, the Father is obviously called God in Philippians 1, 2. The Son is called God in John 1, 1, and verse 14, Colossians 2, 9, Hebrews 1, 8. The Holy Spirit's called God, Acts 5, 3 through 4. So what we do is we look at the scriptures. We write on a piece of paper. There's one God, just one God, no problem. But yet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each called God. We can go to those references again if you want. Each one is said to be eternal. And I can go through the verses on that. We don't have time to get into all of it. If you are interested in this, just go to my website, carm.org, C-A-R-M.org. Go to the search engine in the front page middle and just type in Trinity table and you'll see what I'm reading from. Each one is said to be the creator. Each one indwells us uh, because if uh, Jesus is not God in flesh, how then can he indwell us in his person? Uh, how can he be all knowing? How can they be everywhere? And things like this. We'll get into this, I'm sure. And the issue here is when we talk about uh, persons the, in the context of the Trinity, the word person has a theological significance. I, from my research uh, led me to uh, to conclude that the word person was borrowed from uh, stage acting, persona, a mask. And the theologians used that uh, term uh, when designating the different aspects uh, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we say he's, you know, there's a thing called person, and then, of course, personhood. But what is that? Well, personhood, the attributes of personhood, you know, self-awareness, awareness of others, can say you and yours and me and mine, can speak, have a will, things like that. Well, the Father has a will, the Son has a will, the Holy Spirit has a will. Uh, if anyone, I don't know what his position is. If he says the Holy Spirit's not alive, it's a force, whatever, well, then he's going against Scripture. I don't know what his position is. Some people will find that out and talk about it. But the Holy Spirit speaks, as does the Son and the Father. Uh, the Holy Spirit loves, as does the Father and the Son. We have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are attributes of personhood. Now, we can get into the Greek. We could go into all kinds of things about the Greek is saying uh, and the clarifications of the issues of worship, adoration, prayer. Uh, appellations and references in the Old Testament in reference to Christ in the New Testament. If anyone were to just sit there and let the scriptures speak, you'll find a principle that Jesus, and this is very important because I'll be probably, probably will be referring to this. I don't know what his position is, to be honest, in some details, but I've done this so many times that one of the common things that I say constantly is that Jesus was made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. He's obligated to follow uh, God who is under because uh, he was under the law and he would follow God uh, the Father. And uh, he's made for a little while lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.9. So in that state, uh, then there would be an authority above him. And this does not negate the doctrine of the Trinity. And we'll see uh, if the, uh, my opponent, if Sean understands these issues, divine simplicity or subordination versus the subordinationism, uh, economic Trinity, ontological Trinity, uh, perichoresis. We'll see. 
uh, how much he knows. I don't know. Maybe he knows it all. We can talk uh, more. Who knows? But this is how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. It's not arrived at through philosophy. It's arrived at by looking at the scriptures. One God. Each one's called God. They speak to each other. They each have wills. They love. Well, let's call them persons. That's what they do. And so there's three of them. They're all the one God. That's what, that's what the Trinity is. It's not rocket science. It's rocket science to deny it because of the machinations and hopscotching of logic and philosophy that they have to do in order to deny what the scriptures clearly teach. Okay, there you go, how's that? All right, thank you guys so much once again. And so once again, this will be about a 60 minute discussion. You guys will be able to tackle these issues. I may intervene once in a while if I hear a scripture that maybe need to be fleshed out a little bit more or something like that. You may see me jump in there, but other than that, you guys have the stage, so. You guys got it. Okay. Awesome. You want to ask like a question? You want to... Sure. You, let you me ask you. Is a... Okay. Is the Holy Spirit a person or not? No. no. Which one? This or that? Which one is the no? According to how not... you opened up and, just, and described the Holy Spirit, he's not a person. I do not agree not with your person. description. Okay. Yeah. Is the Son eternal? In the past, uh, I don't think the scriptures. I don't think the scriptures tell us. I think he was with the Father before the world began, like he says. But um, I think he was a sub, the same substance of the Father. Um, I just it doesn't say whether the Father brought him forth at some point before the world began. I just know that fathers are always greater than sons. So I know the Father's the Almighty. Yeah, greater can be in position, not nature. Um, so now, okay, now also I'm curious. Uh, the scriptures don't tell us if he's eternal, which means it could be the case that he is eternal, right? Yeah, I have no problem with him being eternal. Okay. Uh, okay, so then we can work from that position that you affirm that he's eternal. And he has the same substance as God the Father? He does. The Bible tells us what that substance is. And what is that substance? And it's not its not the homoousius that was debated in the 4th century. What it's is spirit. that substance? Spirit. spirit. What is spirit? John 4, 24. It's a mixture of the power of God and water. These are the nature of heavenly beings, divine beings. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it says Adam was uh, made from the dirt, and then the last Adam was the life-giving spirit, the man from heaven. Yeah, that's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 45, uh, the last Adam. But uh, so And, and angels spirit, are called ministering spirits in Psalm 104. Yeah. But you said spirits are a mixture of power and water? It's the Spirit of God is the power of the Father that permeates all creation. Psalm 139, as well as Yeshua tells us, at the resurrection, we must be born of water and spirit to inherit the kingdom of God. That's the ontological substance of the Father and the Son. Okay, so you went to John 3, 3 through 8, and uh, water and the spirit, which we could talk about context, but um, so I'm trying to get something very specific. You're saying the nature of spirit is power and water. That's what the ontological essence is? Yes, that's what Jesus explains in John 3, 5. The ontological, okay, so I'm writing this down. The ontological essence, you know, that's redundant, right? The ontos is water. I'm just using essence because Trinitarians use it. I would just say ontology, oh, but I know you want to hear the word essence. That's fine. The ontos, okay? Yeah. So the ontological essence, well, that's redundant, but that's okay for now, is spirit and water. So spirit has water in it, H2O. No, I right. said the Spirit of God is the power of God, but it's mixed with water, and that's what creates a spiritual, heavenly, divine being. 
as scripture tells okay. us. Okay, so the power of God is mixed with water to make what? A heavenly divine being. This is what we're promised to become at the resurrection, that we become like Yeshua at his coming. We're, we're quickened Wait. and glorified like he already was. So, okay, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm quizzing you. I'm just trying to find out what you believe in. But uh, so no, okay. the power of God is mixed, is mixed with water to make heavenly divine beings. John 3, 5. What is a heavenly divine, divine being? Someone that has an immortal body, immortality. They've shedded mortality and they've put on, they've reclothed with immortality. Oh, so it's not happened to us yet. Not, not, not humans of the dirt, no, but angels are immortal. The Father, the Son, well, the Son's glorified now. He has an immortal body. Okay, being a, an immortal body. Okay. Okay, does God have an immortal body? God the Father? Yes, yes, absolutely. He is unbegotten. Uh, the Father is, is unbegotten. What shape is God's body? Just like ours, Daniel 7, Revelation 5. Yeah, he's, we're made in our, we're, he made us in his image. So God the Father has a body, and uh, does. does that mean he has arms and legs? He does, just like Daniel saw in the vision in Daniel 7. Okay, so he has arms and legs. Does he have He's got a face. We're going to hug him. At the resurrection, will you be able to hug the Father? Uh, no. Um, so does he have uh, lungs? Yeah, he's got a body like ours. He's a male, does actually. He... He's not, he's not genderless. He's actually a male. So God the Father has genitalia. Yes, a non-corporeal genderless entity of essence is a pagan Gnostic idea. Okay, this, so this Christian genitalia. Bible, the scriptures tell us that he has a body. Okay, so arms and legs, face, lungs, and genitalia. Has he always had yeah. genitalia? Um, as long as he needs to, as long as he wants to interact with his creation... Um, I believe he has, since before the world began, he and the Son both had bodies that they made us to be like in their image. So at the resurrection, it says we eat the water, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to have a wonderful dinner with the Father and the Son and their kingdom, and they serve us food. They, they we're going to have fully working bodies with excretory systems and everything. So the genitalia is not for sex, for procreation, as, as Yeshua tells us in uh, Matthew 29, 29 and 30. But it's for literally for the function of existing to be able to eat, excrete, enjoy life as he intended in this creation. Okay, so this is really fast. I didn't expect this, and thanks for letting me quiz you. But so God the Father has legs, face, lungs, genitalia. Has he had them eternally? Uh, scripture doesn't say, but I'll just say yes. Okay, he's, he has. Since. You know, since we don't really count time um, until he made the sun, moon, and stars, then I'm going to go ahead and say anything before that. We'll just call that eternity. Okay, that's that's fair. So he had arms, legs, face, lungs, genitalia. Uh, what's the purpose of genitalia again? Excretory systems. He, he uh, engages in the creation, so he's going to eat food. He's going to have to. He's going to have to process that food. So, so I God guess the question eats. would be on this topic. Oh, absolutely! It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're gonna have, we're gonna be inheriting the Father in the Son's house. Does the God, God the it's, Father has He been eating eternally in the past? Um, he doesn't have to. He says in the Psalms that He doesn't need to eat, but He, I think, He enjoys the creation with us. Yeah. So, did He eat anything before He created anything? 
well, if there was nothing to eat, I don't know what existence was like before Genesis 1-1. So we'd just be speculating. Well, let me quick question on this topic for you. In Genesis one twenty six, when he says, let us make man in our image, you, you believe that's the Trinity talking, right? Uh, yeah. So then why, who's in, what do you mean by the word image if you don't think that they had a body to make us in their image? It's communicable and incommunicable attribution. Incommunicable attributes of God are such things as he's omniscient. We are not omniscient. He's omnipotent. We are not omnipotent. He's everywhere. We are not everywhere. The communicable attributes, he loves, we can love. He thinks, we can think. And so the communicable attributes are those those attributes that belong to God that we can participate in. That's what that is. Since God, whenever you see God appearing in the Old Testament, it's never God the Father. You're aware of that, right? Uh, you'd have to give me a specific verse. I mean, but I, I believe in agency as far as his ministry and angels coming to earth to to help those who inherit in salvation, as Hebrews one fourteen talks about. Okay. Then what do you do with, just curious, Exodus 6, 2, and 3, I can quote it to you, but you can take a look at it if you want, where it says it's God spoke further. So when God spoke further to Moses, that was really an angel, not God? Yeah, the, the word God is the word Elohim in the Hebrew. And so uh, I think it's just, modern day translators that capitalize that G and, and kind of modern day readers forget the definition of the word. So if you actually look in Exodus three, it says the angel that was in the bush. Similarly, it's the same angel that's led them out of the Exodus that Exodus 23 specifically identifies the one that was sent to go before them. Is what's the name of, of God then? Uh, he reveals himself as the almighty who then is called, you know, according to, I guess, all the available information we have, he's considered the father or the Yahweh. Some okay, people so really get, they really get, to, you know, stuck Yahweh. on the pronunciation. I don't get stuck on the pronunciation. Yeah. yeah neither. Yahweh's fine. We talked about yeah, this okay. on our radio show today, as a matter of fact. It was interesting. So when the Bible says God spoke to Moses, said to him, I am Yahweh, that's really not Yahweh. No, I mean, an angel is tasked to, to bring the message, just like in John 1 1, excuse me, in Revelation 1 1. It says that God gave Jesus, who's the testimony, this this information, who then gave it to an angel, who then gave it to John, the revelator. So there's a process, there's a hierarchy of, of authority through agency. Well, in Exodus 5, uh, 22, Moses returned to, to Yahweh and said, oh, Yahweh, uh, why have you brought harm to this people? He's talking to Yahweh, right? Yeah, the, I mean, the ancient world is very common that you, we know. I mean, if you're if you're reconciling Exodus, the book of Exodus specifically, um, and you believe in Exodus 5 and 6, he's speaking directly to Yahweh, but yet in Exodus 33, Yahweh says, nobody can see my face, no flesh can see my face and live. Yeah, what do you think was happening and there? In 33.20, nine verses later, they, he says, God will go to Moses' face, the face of the man speaks to his friend. But uh, well, so if you, in, what dropped down on the tent of meeting when they spoke face to face like a man speaks to his friend? It was the angel of the presence the, that was hovering above him. Yeah, the angel messenger, the presence, yeah. But I'm concerned about this. Uh, the one this. that hovered above them and then dropped down? Yeah, it's the presence of God there. Uh, now, because angel just means messenger. It doesn't mean it's a created being it necessarily. Okay. No, so I'm just saying, says, according to your logic, you're telling me that he's speaking with Yahweh directly, but Yahweh says mortal flesh can't see his face and live. So yeah. I don't speaking think he's speaking to the, the Father directly. Speaking is not the same thing as seeing. Okay. Either one, brother. So, I don't think he's standing face to face with Yahweh the Almighty. I think he's standing with the messenger, personally. I agree with you. But who okay. that is is the issue. Um, God spoke for the oh, Lord, said, I am, said, I am you Yahweh. Think it's so it's not, 
pre-incarnate Christ. So when God is speaking to Moses, said, I am Yahweh, and he appeared as God Almighty, that really was not God Almighty. It really was not Yahweh. It really was not God. Right. He didn't say that. In Exodus 6.3 says, to the patriarchs before you, I revealed to myself as they called me the Almighty, but to you I will reveal my name. So he didn't no, say, I revealed say myself as the Almighty to them. Would we like says, to pull it up and read it? Yeah, I'm looking at it. Uh, God spoke okay. first to Moses, said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, did myself make known to him. He didn't reveal it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when, but uh, the point I'm trying to get to is, so when it says God spoke to Moses, it wasn't God speaking. And when he says, I am Yahweh, it really wasn't Yahweh. And when he says he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, he really was not appearing as God Almighty. I understand about representation. Okay, I understand that. You can go to Exodus 29 and well, do all can that. I, kind of can, I address, so, can I address yeah, the patriarch curious. argument you're making? Sure. I, I'm just trying to understand your text, what you think. Yeah. So if you're saying that you take the words of the angel in Exodus 6.3, to Moses to say that he appeared to the patriarchs before him as God Almighty. Are you claiming that God Almighty, the Father, literally appeared in, in some physical manifestation to Abraham in Genesis 12 no. or Genesis 15? No. Or you think it's Christology? It's it's pre-incarnate Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're going off the Trinity triune essence de definition because of that? No. I'm just I'm making sure I understand your position. Yeah, I'm not going off the Trinity for that. I'm going off what the text says. And Jesus says in John 6, 46, not that any man has seen the Father. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, that the, speaking of the Father, there was an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. They were seeing God Almighty, but it wasn't God the Father. So who was God Almighty who's not God the Father? Well, that's what I'm saying. All the angels show up in the authority of Yahweh with a message from Yahweh, and they speak in the first person authoritative as if Yahweh's speaking. This is, this is replete throughout the Old Testament. So then when an angel comes and says, I'm Yahweh, is that true or is it not true? It's the messenger revealing the message from the one who spoke I gotcha. it. I got you. I mean, this, is a, this angel, is a Hebraic agency. This is well-documented in Hebraic literature. But, yeah, but you don't understand who the angel is who's doing this. So the thing is, when, an, when you, your angel, from your perspective, that it means a created being, when the created being appears and says, I'm God, it's not really God. I'm Yahweh, but it's not really Yahweh, right? So in the same way that the angel of the presence that hovered over the tent of meeting, um, whenever Moses had a question, it said he would go to Yahweh to ask this question. But Yahweh wasn't really there. They went to the angel that was over the tent of meeting to ask the question. He was the, the conduit. Angel. Is it a created thing or is oh, it the second? I, I know that you're, it, it doesn't matter. It does, whether he's created yes, as an angel. I, what, well, tell me how. how do you, why do you factor it into your theology like it matters to be Christology, a pre-incarnate Because. Christ? Because either one works. The angel, from your perspective, you say so far, is a created thing and it represents God. But if it's the second person of the Trinity, then he's well, eternal. He can be that messenger. He can be that and take that place. So it's not a problem. Real quick, before we go too much further, I, I, I mean, I, I understand the, the pre-incarnate Christology doctrines that, I mean, I think it kind of started with some of the language from Irenaeus in the second century. Um, and I understand what you're, I've heard, you know, grew up um, trying to, parcel out what you're saying and saying and saying like, oh, Jesus showed up everywhere in the Old Testament speaking in the name of the Father. But what do you think angels do then if you don't think it's an angel in Exodus 6-3? Like, when do they ever show up if you think it's if it's the pre-incarnate sun showing up everywhere? What kind of angels? 
Well, there, the Bible classifies multiple classes of angels, uh, seraphim, ophim, cherubim, watchers. And I'm just asking you as far as like, if you're claiming in that moment, the Exodus, it wasn't just an angel, but it was a pre-incarnate Christ. I'm asking you, like, did angels ever show up at any point? And, and, and Moses and the people did. knew it was an angel? Of course okay, so I'm what, just trying like, to what, get you to... What verses? Yeah. Well, I don't know. What, what instances? You can go to Genesis 17 and 18 and talk about that. The angel appeared. But what I'm talking about here isn't that. I'm talking about specifically, I'm trying to get you to admit that what your interpretation gets the text to say the opposite of what it says. That's what, what I'm trying to get you to admit. Opinion? It says God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. So I believe it was God who spoke to Moses because he says, I am Yahweh. I believe that was God. because Why? Because the text says God. So it says God, so I believe okay, it was so, God. And you, That's what I do. And you define the word God according to a triune, one essence God. Nope. I'm just saying it just says God. All it's saying here is God. How do you define the word God? God. Spoke, where do I find it? Right there. It's Elohim. How do you define the word God? The being who is the, the, the eternal being who exists and is the creator of all things. That's who that is. Okay. Would you agree? Okay, so, so then it says you're he using a definition that's on that's contrary to the lexiconic word Elohim. Elohim is not always used for the Almighty. Philosophy for on rulers, divine beings, the lexiconic that means the definitional, the concordance, the definitional. This is not philosophy. So you're using a definition for God outside of its established historical lexiconic definition, which you mean the word Elohim, sometimes Elo, sometimes <laughs> Eloha, El can be used Eloha. for the Almighty. Right. It can be used for angels it can be used for unclean spirits People. it can be used for judges of men so that's all i'm saying is i'm just asking you, you're you're only using it for the sense of a triune essence god that's therefore you must insert the, the pre-incarnate christology of christ showing up so would you say the appearance of the angel of the lord in judges chapter 2 was also christ i have to read the context don't recall off the top of my head so i can't say but can we go back to okay. another angel 6? shows up and talks to him <clears throat> Well, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But it says here, God spoke to Moses. Uh, I'm ex assuming it's a God of the Old Testament. You just did what you did was you went to what's called a semantic domain where a word has many meanings in different contexts. I would, you say, what does it mean? In this context, it's the one who identifies himself as Yahweh. That's God. Would you agree that's God who identifies himself as Yahweh, the name of God, right? Uh, I, well, I thought we already addressed this where we said that God himself can't show up. So we know it's not the father. So you're inserting the second person of the Trinity to show up. And I'm saying to you, that's, you know, that's your prerogative to do that. But historically, and according to Exodus itself, uh, it says there's an angel of the Lord that's tasked to go with them. And he's the one that's the same one that's speaking to him in the burning bush. We see all throughout their journey. Uh, he's with them the whole time for 40 years. So I... I, I would say it's a eisegetical insertion to just assume that's a pre-incarnate Yeshua appearance. You're the one doing that. You're inserting the idea that the word angel necessarily means a created being. You did that. That's your philosophy you're imposing on the text because the word angel can mean many things in different contexts. You just broke your own rule. If the Trinity is true, hypothetically. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, so. if the Trinity is true, if, if it's true. Well, let me ask you this. There's nothing illogical about saying that the angel is the messenger of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, manifesting and doing that. There wouldn't be any violation of any Trinitarian dogma at all. So in your opinion of, of how you're holding to the second person of the Trinity being the angel of the Lord appearing to, to the Israelites coming out of the Exodus, are you then suggesting that going forward that um, Yeshua is showing up, a pre-incarnate Jesus is showing up like everywhere before he was born through the woman Mary? Yep. 
Okay. Okay. I just making sure I understand your, uh, your understanding here. So why then would Yeshua's birth through the woman, Mary, uh, be considered this wonderful announced prophesied heralded thing that, um, was the fullness of time was like, why, if he was showing up everywhere before, why was it such a big deal that he was showing up later as a man? Okay, I'm surprised you'd ask that question. I thought that would be rather obvious because it has to do with Old no, Testament I, I have an answer already. I'm trying to understand your mindset and your, your way of thinking. Because it has to do with Old Testament prophecies and the fact that God would be born among us and okay. born a virgin, et cetera. It's just a basic theology. I'm surprised. Of course, you would, you would know that. Right. Well, why why did he have to become a man if he could just be a, a messenger of the Father in a, a spiritual eternal ontology and just show up and interact with the people before he okay. was born as a man? Why couldn't he just why because why go man, through the sorry, a manifestation is not the same thing as an incarnation, and in the incarnation is where God Himself atoned for our sins. And if you deny the incarnation of God in flesh, that you don't have the sacrifice that's sufficient to cleanse us of all of our sins, and you'd be lost in your sins. This is why uh, there's a difference between manifestation and incarnation. Okay. All right. So then, interesting. So you, every time you see a heavenly being arrive on the earth to help mankind with something, that's a manifestation is what you're saying. Yes. That's how you're classifying uh -huh. it, a manifestation. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I guess at just at its core definitional premise, um, I don't share your definition of God. I don't think there's this essence shared by three persons. And so um, I think there's hierarchy that's clearly enunciated in the scriptures as far as the angels and why they were created to help mankind and be sent to us to, to carry the message of the Father. And so I don't, I don't see any logical or practical or scriptural prophetic eschatological reason for the son to show up before he was supposed to come as a man and so he could become our high priest later. Because otherwise he uh, could just, you know. He's a high priest uh, at his baptism. Do you know what the term economic trinity means by any chance? Do you know that's not when a high priest is anointed with oil? Okay. Do you know what the term economic trinity means? I do. They still share the same essence. They're still considered three persons, but one is, is intentionally subordinate in order to carry on the economy of what's needed for the prophecy. And that's what the economic trinity and some people, some people try to lean okay. it towards a monarchical Trinitarianism. I don't, I, I think either one depends on your perfect, your preference, but ultimately, um, yeah, I'll stop there. I'll let you go ahead with your next question. Yeah. So a hierarchical structure according to the Trinity, Trinity would not be a violation or a challenge to our faith on the doctrine of the Trinity at all. Okay. If you understand that, you no. know, we do. do no, I do understand it. I'm just asking what. So do you believe the son was co-equal in all authority with the, with the almighty before he became through the womb of a woman? Yes. Okay. Thank you. So um, why is that? Why is the father called the almighty if the son is co-equal with him? And you would say it's because they share that essence. Well, why would the father be called the father if the son's co-equal? Because they have different address due to the economic trinity. Well, I, I would say that's isogetically imposed into the whole storyline. I mean, the son's never called equal to the father. Um, really? Yes, but, he is. I, so quick question though, what is this essence that you're, that you're believing is defined of three persons? What is, is that in scripture anywhere? What is the essence? What, what substance is this essence? 
the substance of the essence. It's just what whatever God is. That's his own substance. Okay, does the Bible tell us what that substance is, or, or does, is there another definition you know of? Well, I'm afraid to give you a, 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 a competent logical answer. You might accuse me of philosophy. Well, at the beginning of this, I, I opened up with telling and declared, you know, lovingly declaring that the Bible already tells us what this substance is. It's called spirit, John 4, 24. Yeah, and the Bible Jesus tells says us what the spirit Father is not. Is spirit. Yeah, John 4, 24, and I've been to that well and drank out of that very well. In Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, Spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Spirit is not said to be power and water mixed together. It's not well, it's literally teaches. what Jesus says in John 3, 5, that we're getting at the resurrection. No, no, no. No, he says it's, there's a born. Now, look, uh, you're the one, you don't realize it, but you're the one just, you have heaps and mounds of philosophy you're imposing upon the text if you want okay, me go brother. to john 3 and take a look at it and see I what actually, you say is I, there i would actually love since we're on the topic of the ontology of the, the godhead according to your view as a resurrected i know you believe in the hypostatic union and i know you believe that yeshua carries that hypostatic union even after his resurrection so i would like for if you could help me understand your view on when yeshua was resurrected and now glorified um and he let his disciples touch him did he have a body that could be touched was it a real thing yes it was the same body that he died in because he prophesied that he would perform his own resurrection in john 2 19 to uh, 21 when he said destroy this temple three days i will raise it up the i will raise as a gero in the greek future active indicative first person singular he's performing the action you can cross-reference it with first corinthians 15 35 through 45 where the body is is the thing that is sown in the ground it is a thing that is raised jesus was crucified holes in his hands well in that feet, very john passage 20. you're quoting I'm sorry, go ahead. John 20, 25 through 28, Jesus said to Thomas, put your hand into my side and believe. So he was resurrected in the same body he died in, but it's a glorified body. So, and that, and the reason you make that statement is because you believe the body that Jesus had before he was crucified was 100% God and 100% dust of the earth. The body, no, the body by definition is physical and it's human. God doesn't have a body. It's made, made, made of the dust of the earth, like mankind. We, our bodies are not made yeah. of spirit and water. We're made of the spirit and the dust of the right. earth. Only the okay. human nature, so, only the, the body died, not the divine. Okay. Again, again, that's respectfully, I'd say that's eisegetically imposed, but, um, no, so the body that Jesus had and was killed in. No, no, no. Hold on. You're just, you're just, you keep doing this and you're making mistakes. Okay. You're making a lot of mistakes. I'm not, so? I'm not going to step on every one of them. Look, only the physical body of Christ your, died. That's your opinion. Is only the physical body die? Did, did that what by, died on the cross? Yeshua. Right. That's what died. It, you, I would put forward that Yeshua, when he became born of the womb of Mary and, and took on a, a earthy body, as 1 Corinthians 15 explains, that he no longer had an eternal nature. He no longer had the spirit nature because the two do not coexist. There's nothing well, in scripture well. that tells you of a hypostatic union. Wait, he yes, had a body yeah, made of dirt, the dirt of the earth. Okay. That's that's post-resurrection. He had the fullness of the Godhead post-resurrection. And that's for the authority over the Ecclesia, as it says in verse 10. This okay. is where Trinitarians classically take verse 9 and just assume the triune essence. But I'm trying to explain that the, the 1 Corinthians 15 tells us very clearly that Jesus had a regular earthy body. And then after the 
immortal, the perishable is, is cast off, the imperishable, the immortal is, is put on. This is why there's only two ontologies in all of scripture. There's the earthy and the spirit. There's no special essence. There's no hypostatic, nothing. None of that's described. This is all Trinitarian doctrine. <clears throat> I'm going to say a, a four-letter word for you, okay? You ready? Philosophy. And what it is is just an application of logic. So I'll just get ready. But I'm curious. You said, now I'm really curious. You said something. What? So Jesus took on an earthly nature. That's right. So Philippians what was, 2, what 6 his, through 10. What was, yeah, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I, I know it. But uh, what was Jesus' nature before or whatever Spirit. whatever he was before? Okay. So Spirit, just like everything nature, else in heaven. Nate. Wait. Everything in heaven is spirit? God, the Father, and the angels are all made of spirit, like the scriptures tell us. Oh, okay, so he's spirit. Okay. He was and, before he dethroned that and took on the, okay. the dirt of the earth body, and then killed, was died, okay. glorified, and given a spiritual nature again. First okay. Corinthians 15. So be, before the incarnation, uh, I don't know what you call him, but you call him Jesus for now, okay, was spirit. Pre-existent Jesus. Yeah, pre-incarnate. Yeah. Okay, okay. pre-incarnate, right? Was Jesus was spirit, and then uh, was born, right? Mm -hmm. Was he still spirit? No, he. That's the mystery of godliness being mentioned in First Timothy three sixteen. That he dethroned that and then manifested in the flesh. Okay, so he's born. He was spirit before, and then stopped being spirit when he was incarnated, right? Right. And then he's fully man. Okay. That's the only reason he can be chosen to be high priest, okay. to sympathize with the weaknesses of his brothers. So can a bowling ball become a, uh, a, sh a sh uh, let's see, a watermelon? Can a bowling I mean, if ball we're going to... If, if we're going to do you know, false equivalencies, if you want to do false equivalencies, I mean, if the father okay. can take a bowling ball and turn it into a watermelon, since he's the creator of all things, then yes, he can do that. I didn't ask that. I said, is the, I asked, is she a did. bowling ball the same? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Can a, I said, can a bowling ball become a, a, a watermelon? So does in, bowling in the, ball in have the context of the father being involved? Yes, okay. a he can change the nature of a bowling. Just like he can raise up children from the Hold rocks on. if he wanted to. He can. He's a creator. You're not thinking. You're not thinking critically. So, uh, so a bowling ball has a certain essence and a certain nature, right? Is that essence and the nature the same as a watermelon? No. Here, look. You have to understand. Is it made something. of spirit or earth? The properties emanate out of the essence of something, what it is. You recognize something by its characteristics, by its properties. And so for you to say that Jesus was a spirit and then his nature is tied to his spirit and his essence and personhood are tied to I his spirit. I didn't say that. You're assuming it, that. That's Trinitarian thought. Oh, I didn't say that. No, no, it's not Trinitarian thought. You've got to stop to doing tie, that. To tie essence with the nature? That's a Trinitarian uh, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand what I'm doing. You don't even understand the issues. Okay, you don't understand what I'm talking about. It's not a stop with this. Everything you don't understand, you say it's Trinitarian thought. It's not. That's not the case. How are you defining nature in your example? How are you defining nature? I'm example? not. I'm asking you what you mean. I'm asking what you mean. See, nature is whatever it is, but we don't know what nature is. We only can experience nature by the properties that it emanates. We don't have can, a bottle of of uh, roundness that's ethereal. We only notice roundness by the properties that it emanates. 
So you're using so nature like synonymous with essence then? Yeah, for now, because that's how okay. the terms are used. Okay. All right. I'm sorry, I was and just so, confused on how I thought you were adding two things to it, but you're just using them synonymously. I'm you sorry should about that. study some philosophy because you can learn some more logic. So the thing is, are you familiar with continuity? The problem sure, of continuity? Okay, I mean, that's not that. my problem, but I understand. So that's an, angel, idea. an angel is an angel by nature and not a man by nature. They're not the same. The The essence okay. of an angel is different than the essence of a man. And so the spirit the and the earth. Ident- I agree. The the identity and self-awareness of an angel is due to his essence as an angel. If that essence as an angel ceases, his identity ceases. He stops to be. He can't become a man. That's that's where I already posited that uh, Paul is referencing this very idea in 1 Timothy 3.16, calls it the mystery of godliness. Godliness being something that's set apart and you maintain your divine attributes and your divine nature. This is why Yeshua, Jesus, could talk about being about his father's business at 12 years old, could know his purpose and mission, could remain without sin, and could get to the cross faithfully under the mission of his father, um, knowing that he his kingdom, uh, like he tells Pilate, is not of this earth. Knowing that, like in Matthew 12, he talks about, I could call legions down for my father if I wanted. He knew who he was, but he also knew that he existed with the father before the world began in a spirit form, but now was on a mission in the flesh. So I agree with you that the, the if we're talking and using nature as a descriptor for your attributes, I agree with you that he maintained those attributes. But this is what I feel like Paul tries to address in 1 Timothy 3.16. Did Jesus change his nature of pre and post? attributes personality obedience no ontology yes he went from spirit to the flesh and then back to the spirit so if you're linking ontology with his attributes and well that's to you i mean the bible describes it for us but you just say it's impossible you also don't think god has a body yeah of course i don't uh you reject logic let me ask you real quick matt you can i ask you a couple questions now since you've had lots of questions for me so Uh why don't you think Daniel saw an actual body for the, the Ancient of Days, the most high. It was a manifestation. You go to Exodus 24, 9 to 11, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. He wasn't. The respectfully, uh, Daniel wasn't seeing an angel show up to him. He was seeing a vision of things in heaven in the future. He was seeing a, a prophetic vision. He wasn't seeing a manifestation of something in front of him. He's seeing the father sitting on his throne. That's fine. So... So that you're saying that the father showed Daniel a vision of something that's not truly real, like the doctrine of accommodation, isn't a, a vision representation. Well, if you define it as a representation, that lends to what I just asked you. Are you claiming doctrine of accommodation that you're saying that the Almighty showed Daniel a vision of something that wasn't truly real, but just something he could grasp and hold on to? Yeah. Okay. So in that same there's... vision. He also showed him the son of man, whom was going to be given a kingdom that never goes away. But you would agree that that was a real representation of a future Yeshua who reigns over the earth. And he did have a body, just like the Ancient of Days had a body. So I would say your logic is inconsistent in your interpretation of Daniel 7. No, it's not. Uh, you're, you're, you're eisegeting and doing violence to really? the scriptures. Yes. Would because you like to pull it up and read it in front of everybody? There are certain areas of scripture that are, are are metaphorical and symbolic that carry truths within them. That's what they're designed to do, just like parables are. They're designed what, to represent what, things. And hold on a second. What and cipher what do you have to interpret it like that? 
What cipher? Uh, I crack what cipher have you been given? Yeah, what, what authority of cipher have you been given in order to yeah. literally interpret it? One thing is metaphoric and another is literal. No, I'm telling you about interpretive. I'm telling you about interpretive principles. And for you to ask what cipher I have, it really is not germane to the discussion. You need to stay on track instead of asking something like, what cipher do you have? What little code book do you have? That's kind of a mock. I'm asking you, it's a genuine question. It. I'm, I'm, it's a genuine okay. question because you're claiming me to me you. that a physical vision wasn't you. actually a vision. Okay. I, no, I didn't say yeah. that. I didn't say that. When you go to Revelation 20, for example, and he says he saw an angel come down from heaven, literal or figurative, literal, with a great chain in his hand. Was it a literal chain he's going to bind Satan with? Yes. A literal yes. chain? Oh, it's with yes. a literal yes. chain made of metal. He's yes. going to bind Satan Satan's with a literal a, chain. Say, okay. Well, technically, it's. I don't know if it's made of metal, but I would assume it is since heaven has the same properties as the earth. And they eat food. They have land. They have animals. They have crops. They have houses. There's a real place. It's a real place, brother. Do you believe heaven's an actual real place and that the things in heaven are real? What are you going to be doing when you inherit the kingdom of heaven? Hold on. You made a statement. Then you asked a question. You didn't allow your statement to be cross-examined. So you you believe okay. that? Well, let me ask you, does God I don't have to house? let you cross-examine every single statement. You know that. You don't have to. It'll make you look bad. If Jesus said in John 14 him. that he's going to come receive us back to him because that he's going to prepare a place for us. And in his father's house are many mansions, many rooms. So we understand heaven's a real place. The father has a real place. We're going to have real abodes that are being prepared for the resurrected right now. This is a real place. The wedding supper of a lamb is a real meal. You're going to be resurrected back to a real body, a real spiritual body like Yeshua exemplified to his disciples. This is the epitome of Gnostic philosophy is to claim that the ethereal spiritual world is not tangible. It's literally the epitome of Gnostic philosophy. No, you don't know what you're talking about. You should stop with the your oh, Gnostic okay. stuff. You don't know where it is. Um, so, oh, really? Okay, so oh, yeah. let me ask you, does no, God the Father live Did you know that homoousius is literally the word they pulled from the Gnostic guy, Balisades, from the second century? And that's what they argued yeah. about at the Nicene Creed yeah. in the Constantinople? Yeah. Are you aware yeah, of that? Just because you, yeah, just because you pull a word from a pagan source doesn't mean it's pagan. If an, it's if literally a, the church uh, councils I'm pulling the word from. Okay. okay. Look, you're not thinking critically. You make it, it's called the genetic really? fallacy. Really? Look, so if a murderer, do you know what the genetic fallacy is? It's a word that literally all the ancient pagan cultures use to describe a oh, non-corporeal god. A non-corporeal okay. God with an essence that could not be defined, but yet had to be venerated. And this, the, the Bible clearly tells us the essence of the Father. He's made of spirit and water, and he has a real body. Heaven is a real place. Do you know what the genetic fallacy is? I'll let you. No, I don't. Go ahead and explain no, it to don't. me from your words. It's a logic error when you say the source of mm -hmm. something is bad, so therefore what comes out of it is automatically bad. So if an atheist teaches me algebra, does that mean that algebra is invalid because an atheist taught it's called a genetic fallacy? What you're saying it's not is a fallacy words, when the Bible said, literally on, tells us something already. It's not a fallacy when I'm cross-comparing and contrasting your definition of a word with the scriptures that tell us the definition of that of that concept already okay. that's an assumption that you claim i'm genetically making a fallacy of the origin of a concept and i'm saying the origin of the concept and its definitional use in the trinitarian councils directly contradicts the scriptures which already tell us the nature of heavenly beings okay all right so just because a word is used by pagans and came from a pagan usage doesn't mean it's a pagan 
They can use words like the word persona was used to describe certain aspects of the nature of God. And the word persona came from Latin dealing with mask. It's a genetic fallacy mistake you're making and you're making a lot of them. And apparently since you don't like philosophy and the logic that's necessary along with it, this would explain why you're making so many mistakes. I'm pointing them out to you. So These are your I, opinions on mistakes. You, you know that, right? Well, people who know logic uh, will listen to this. I would and say, point them out the I would say, you're making. lovingly, I would you say your logic. logic. I would say that your logic to to read the words of Revelation one and five and Daniel seven okay. and directly say the Father doesn't have a body and heaven's not a real tangible place. That's a logical fallacy with the rest of your interpretation of all of Scripture. What logical fallacy is it? Name it. What? And I didn't. That's literally you're literally saying that you can just, upon your own authority, interpret some of this to be metaphoric, some of it to be interpretive, and other for it to be literal and tangible. We already went through the example of Daniel seven, where you claimed I was doing script torture. But I'm asking you, what hope do you actually have if if heaven's not a real place and you don't get a real physical, tangible, spiritual body at the resurrection to be in the Father's house with Him and the Son? What hope do you really have? What are you going to expend eternity as? Um, Help me understand all, your I view of, of all this. First of all, I don't claim my own authority. You've accused me of that several times. It's not what I, my position. You should actually, like I'm doing what I'm doing, taking notes from what you said. I don't know if you're doing the same thing, but you should take notes, write it down. Matt does not claim his own authority. I don't. So if you continue to say that, that's a misrepresentation. I watched you do it. I watched you do it. When we talked about Daniel 7. And there's, you know what hermeneutics is by any chance? Yeah. And I'm, that's what I'm trying it to tell it. you. You're employing a very subjective hermeneutic lens well, where you claim you get to determine willy-nilly what is interpretive and what's literal. Oh, so now it's just willy-nilly without any reasons, without anything like that. Okay. So let's get back to, to your God. If you would like I to was, give me a reason, I'm all ears, but I didn't hear one. You just, you just claimed. You made a claim of me and said I was doing script torture to the text. I said, you would you like to read it? You said you just skipped right by that question. If you want it, to, if you want it, to defend— if you want to defend your interpretation of Daniel 7, why you don't think God literally has a body that's being shown to Daniel, I'm all ears. I'd love to hear your understanding. Because he had visions, and visions are representations of spiritual realities. What is a visible visible body of the Father on a throne in the Ancient of Days? What's, that a, what's it compared to in a representation format? What, what is he representing, if not a physical a God, the Father? He's because he's speaking in our language is called anthropomorphism. So it's a doctrine of accommodation. I got it. Okay. I'm just making sure I understand your position. Yeah. It's just something the scripture does all the time. Does God exist yeah. everywhere all the time? Does God exist? Everywhere no, I don't think so. I mean, you, you may think so if you believe in the essence, but I, I think that he has a singular person body. He's in, he's enthroned in the heavens, his power, his spirit, as the scriptures tells us, permeates all creation and fills all, all things, heaven and earth. But the physical body of the Father is on the throne and the, the Most High, the heavens okay. of the heavens, as Deuteronomy 10, 14 talks about. So does God live in a house or a room of some sort? Yeah, he has, um, he has his own throne, which is in his own tabernacle that Yeshua ministers in, in Hebrews 8, 1 through 3. So he lives in a tabernacle and he actually sits on a throne. Okay. Yeah, is this he, is this Christian doctrine, brother. This is the Bible. Okay. Would you say he's greater than 10 feet tall or less than 10 feet tall? Or is that a fair question to ask? Um, I, I've never seen a description of his physical height in human measurement. 
So would I've seen a description of his hands, feet, eyes, hair. Would you venture a guess uh, at his size? I think it's irrelevant, feet. honestly. No, it's not. It's is he like a mile tall, 100 miles tall? Or uh, it seems like maybe... a silly question. Would you like to explain why you're asking? Yeah, because I want a list of the things that you believe so we can be published so that people can see how ridiculous your position really is. That's why. So then you're not arguing so in good faith. Know. You're trying to mock. Of course I am. No, I'm not mock mocking you. You're the one who's You're not arguing God. in good faith. Okay, don't tell me what I'm doing in good faith. You don't You're You're heart. exemplifying right. it to me. You okay, literally guys, just told all right, me. All right. Heart. all right, guys, let's make sure we stay on the topic of Trinity. We don't want to get yeah. personal and things like that. Let's, yeah. focus, let's focus in, focus in. Okay. You asked me why. I want people to see what your exegesis, what your your Matt, interpretation of Scripture brings. That's, that's all that's, I'm doing. That's why I'm we're recording this video, brother. That's why we're recording the video. It's all on tape. It's all. It's all. A lot. So yeah. you teach that God is a body of flesh and bones. Oh no, no I didn't say that. Sorry. No. I mean, you didn't say that. I, I, I just understood that. So you believe He has a, is... a body, a corporeal body, right? First Corinthians that... fifteen says there's different types of flesh. There's the earthy, and there's the heavenly. There's the there's the spiritual. Okay. He so does a He have body? a corporeal body? Yes, that's what scripture okay. tells God us. God has a corporeal body. Okay. Yes. And he sits and he has feet. He can eat. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All yes. right. Okay. Can I take you to a so, scripture and, and let's go to Jesus? You want to do that? Or you want to ask me something? Yeah, I've been, I've been wanting to ask you a few things. Sure. Go okay. Ahead. So you believe Jesus has a physical body that now that he's resurrected? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. And you believe that? After his resurrection, he's still co-equal with the Father in authority? In, yes and no. Uh, he voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father by becoming under the law, and he forever will be in that position. It's called subordination, not subordinationism. Okay. And do you believe that Jesus is the high priest of the covenant right now? He's a high priest, absolutely. Okay. What do you think he's doing as a high priest right now in heaven? interceding hebrews 7 uh, 6 27 25 he lives forever to make intercession for us so how does how does the father describe through the scriptures a priest intercedes for the sins of the people <clears throat> oh i know what you're going to say you're going to say he is offering literal blood sacrifices is that it oh i shouldn't guess um so the intercession uh, that's a good question actually i've actually wondered about it and to be honest i'm not exactly sure how the intercession goes in one sense but Fair i enough. do believe in, in another that he is always standing between the father and us and all of our sins and all of our failures Christ mediates all of it, 1 Timothy 2, 5, as the high priest, which is why he was baptized, incidentally, to the Father. And so he acts in that sense for that. So like in Revelation 5, when the angels bring forward the bowls of incense, which represent the prayers of the saints, that's also from the law. That's also described to us in the Old Testament as far as what the priest did as part of their propitiation. Um, so I, uh, I'm just wondering, it's like, I do believe there's a literal temple in heaven. I do believe that he's creating meals for the Father to make atonement for us because they do eat. It's a real existence up there. Um, I believe that Isaiah 56, 7, when the kingdom comes down, burnt offerings will be accepted to the Father. He'll glorify in them because the resurrected saints are now perfected and there's no enmity. Um, and I, I, so, but I, I mean, I'm not trying to bear down on you on that. I just uh, want to remind you that we have a high priest and I agree with you. He's always going to be 
less an authority. So why would the Trinitarian claim still claim that he's co-equal with the father in authority if scripture tells us he's forever going to be a high priest who's always forever going forward going to be subordinate he's never going to be back in the the same authority in your view so why do they still hold to that that creed why don't they just kind of rework the creed a little bit i don't know what creed you're talking about but uh jesus will co-equal co-eternal co-substantial yeah, co-eternal, co-eternal, co-substantial. Uh, but that's not the issue of authority. If you understood Trinitarian theology better, which I think you need to study, you need to study ontological mm-hmm. economic trinity. I'm serious. I'm serious. And, I've been asking uh, about the ontology of God this whole time. I, you know, I've noticed that I'm continually trying to answer. You continually interrupt. Okay. I'm giving you a recommendation. And the recommendation I'm giving you will help you understand these issues. Just because Jesus is in the state that he's in, which is a lesser position, does not mean he doesn't have the same nature. Okay. Okay. Quick, quick question. I've been mentioning ontology this whole time. You just suggested I need to study Trinitarianism better because I don't understand the ontological trinity. And I'm asking you, what is the ontology that you keep asserting must be believed as a part of the creed, what is the essence of the Father and the Son that you believe is this special essence of ontology? Can you define it? You know, the fact that you ask the question demonstrates to me you don't have a good grasp on, on logic. You don't ask the question. Yeah. Is it okay if I respond and, and stuff? Will you actually I'm, address I'm it instead you. of making claims? I'd like to address if it's okay. Instead of trying to denigrate, instead of denigrating me, would you just answer the question? All right, let's allow, okay. All right, guys, let's allow Matt to answer that question. Then Sean, you'll follow up right after that. Moderator, should we encourage the guests to actually answer questions instead of trying to insult the guests every time they answer a question? Yeah. uh, yeah, Or do do you allow just open insults? No, let's let's uh, let's make sure that we're answering the questions. If they're asked, let's make sure to answer the question to the best of your abilities, and uh, with it. no insults involved in there, it should be direct answer. To ask what is the ontology of something is an incorrect answer. It's a non sequitur. If you knew logic, you'd know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Yet yeah, you're claiming I have to define the ontology in order to be saved. Because I have to believe in your Trinitarian ontology. I've seen you do it in other debates. No, look, we're talking. Literally can pull up the video right now. Okay, look, you just said something about me that's not true. You're bearing false witness. You don't understand that you don't know an ontology or a non-toss. You can only discover it by the properties that emanate. No one knows what an ontos is of something, unless you want to get into what's called platonic norms. And even then, we don't know what that is. It just demonstrates that you don't understand these issues, and you shouldn't be asking that kind of question. You should be saying something oh, like... You can't even ask questions. I didn't say... Did I say you can't ask questions? I said if you knew when the I asked issues, you a direct you wouldn't question. ask... Okay, you're let's saying, do it like this. I don't know the issue. I'm asking, a, I shouldn't ask the question. And I'm asking you a direct question. Can you tell me the essence, the Trinitarian creed and belief is three persons, one who, one essence, one what? What is this essence that the three persons share? Can you answer that for me? The divine essence. What is it? What, according to scripture, what is it though? That's, that's the question, isn't it? That's what I'm trying to tell I'm you. I'm asking you, brother. Dude. I really want you to listen to me, 
okay? I need to tell you something. You don't understand what you're asking. You don't then say it's like a bo- <laughs> Hey, Marlon, can you Let's... ask him to let me finish my sentences? He's constantly interrupting. Okay. I'll, I'll go on you. Let's allow let's allow to answer your question. Then, Sean, wow. you come behind and ask another question if you feel so. Go ahead, Matt. I'm going to have to teach him the problem of his thinking. He doesn't understand. Look, for take a bowling ball for example. What's the essence of a bowling ball? Can you take essence and do something with it? Can you take a picture with it? Is it triangular? Is it square? Is it, does it have mass? You don't ask those kinds of questions. The ontos of something is something that is endemic to its own nature. That's just something, the essence is what it is. Well, what is it? It's essence. Well, what is that? No one knows because we don't have the ability to understand, comprehend the essence of something. We can only apprehend the properties that emanate out of an essence. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you say, what's the essence of God? What's the ontology of God? God is what he is. He's just God. Well, what's that? It's God, his Godness, his Trinitarian essence. Well, what's that? You know, it's just a circular thing. I'm trying to tell you, Sean, you don't understand what you're asking here. I'm trying to be very polite. I'm trying to be insulting, but you just don't know. You need to study some philosophy because it's showing very badly in your the way you answer, ask some questions. Okay? I'm trying to be nice, but dude, you're blowing it. Can I respond? Go ahead. Well, I just, I guess, and I want to thank you for justifying my opening statements. Uh, you do say that it must be understood through philosophy and not through scripture. And uh, I have already put forward that scripture directly tells us the power of God, which is called his spirit, and the water is what spiritual heavenly beings are made of. And you're declaring that it can't be known, but I need to study it so that I can understand it can't be known. That is uh, negation theology that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. It's a part of their philosophy. And so I want to encourage you to study the history of philosophy, since you apparently are uninformed in that area. And uh, I'll do my best to search out the essence which you can't define so I can better understand Trinitarianism. Look, I did not say it must be understood through philosophy. You said I said that. I did not say that. I'm saying that you don't understand certain nuances of, of philosophy and just simple logic and how to, to deal with certain issues. That's what I'm saying. Now, I know that there's going to be people who are going to be watching this, and the people who are philosophically, logically trained are going to point the same things out and other things. And I'm trying to tell you this. Yeah. You don't understand the proper way usage of these terms, and you're making mistakes. I that. understand. You don't say what's the essence of God. It just, it's a non sequitur. How do you say what the essence of God is? What's the essence of Scripture a circle? Tells us. Okay, and Scripture it tells, tells us that the, it's the water substance. and power and water? Brother, you know that the creed of Trinitarians is co-substantial. That is part of the, the last of the three legs of the Trinitarian creed is co-substantial. That stands for substance, the homoousius. And I'm telling you, Scripture already tells us what the substance is. And what's the substance? Arius. Arius was arguing that Jesus Christ was made of a different substance, and therefore the other Trinitarians kicked him out of the circle. They're both Trinitarians arguing over something the Bible already defines. They redefined the substance to say it's a special ontology that no one else in creation shares, and they wanted the Father and the Son to be labeled into that ontology, and everything outside of it's a creature. All of it 
was a huge non sequitur. All of it was massively confused because the scriptures already tell us the substance of the Father, the Son, and everything in heaven that has an immortal body, spiritual nature. That is the substance of the Father, the Son, and all angels. That is the substance we are promised at the resurrection. I lovingly would share with you, I would encourage you to study the details of the promised resurrection because you have communicated to me tonight. You do not actually understand the promise for us from the Father through his Son. You do not understand we're, we're supposed to get a spiritual body and live with them in their house forever. And it's a real place. So I, um, yeah, I guess we're at an impasse because you you are offended that i'm saying you're you're applying philosophical ideals to what scripture already tells us and uh and that's where i would lovingly say you have fallen directly into colossians 2 8 you've been taken captive through philosophy it's vain philosophy um so are you saying the substance of spirit is power and water right john, john 3 5 it's what we're promised C can we go look at that sure see what, what if it says that is what you say it says Okay, so you want to John three three. I got it. Je uh, Jesus answered it, and truly, truly, I said to you, unless one's born again, literally from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, mm -hmm. "Well, how can he be born when he's old? He can't enter the second time in his mother's womb, can he?" And right. Jesus says, "Well, truly, truly, you got to be born of water and the Spirit." Uh, to That's enter right. in the kingdom of God. And then he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's contrasting right, he's contrasting spirit and water. He's separating them. No, he's not. He said born of flesh is flesh, born of spirit is spirit. You're born of the spirit at the resurrection. That's how you inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one, flesh and bone, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's after yeah, he already explained the two different types of flesh, the earthy and the spirit, in, in 40, 40 through 47, 1 Corinthians 15. So we need to stick here. Um, and so he says uh, that, because I'm fascinated by this idea that you say, mm -hmm. you say that, that this God is spirit, and spirit is a mixture mm -hmm. of power and water. Is that correct? Yeshua, Yeshua tells us in four, John 4, 24, that God is spirit. Some translations even say a spirit. Well, I, I'm just asking, okay, your position is that spirit is a mixture of power and water. Per right? the promise of Yeshua in John 3, 5. If you're born okay, of you God, say. you're born of spirit and water. Right. I'm That's just trying to understand kingdom. one thing. I'm not saying where. I'm just saying the one thing. You're saying that okay. spirit is a mixture of power and water. That's all I'm asking. Is that correct Matt, or not correct? Matt. Matt, you've you since the beginning. When you answer me, you shotgun verses in your answers. I'm just doing the same thing. It's okay. It's okay, brother. So then, let me try this. Are you saying that spirit is a mixture of power and water? I've said that since the beginning. Yes, your answer is yes. Okay. So then, spirit is a mixture of power and water, and yet Jesus says. Uh, that you must be born of water and the spirit. So if spirit is a mixture of water and power, let's, let's then you must not, be born of water and the water and power. Let's not fall into semantics. This isn't a courtroom. I'll, look, let's keep it simple. I've said since the beginning, if you, if you, you at the resurrection, you're going to be given a body like Yeshua. Okay? This is the promise of the first resurrection. He defines what that body is. It's an immortal body, and it's, it's born of spirit water and spirit, as he tells Nicodemus in John 3, 5. This is what all heavenly beings are consisting of, their substance. 
Okay. This is why the Trinity so you... is a man-made doctrine, because it, it all hinges on the glue of co-substantiation, the substance. And that substance is a different definition than what the Bible defines heavenly beings. So you said spirit is a mixture of power and water. That's what it is. So we can take the word spirit and substitute power and water because you said spirit is power and water. So unless one is born of water and the power and water, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If we take what you say and apply it, it doesn't make any sense. Can you explain that? I've tried to explain it to you multiple times tonight, brother. So if you don't understand it or you don't want to believe it, that's up to you. Um, I don't know how I to make it any more clear. First Corinthians 15 directly tells us the earthy, the earthy. There's two natures. There's two ontologies. There's two substances in all of creation. There's the earthy and there's the spirit. Let me ask you a quick question. Are you sure when he comes back on a white horse, is that a substance of a spiritual nature or is it an earthy horse? Uh, I, I that don't horse know. he comes back on from heaven. I don't you believe know, it's a real you're, you're horse. Out. Uh, yeah. So, but I'm still stuck on this. We, we're, John three. This is what you know. You kept bringing it up. I want to go there, and mm -hmm. I'm putting the, the the pressure on you. Now you want to go someplace else. Uh, but you said is, you said you do this too. You cross reference all the time too, brother. <laughs> Why are you, you acting like it's a big deal to cross reference? You uh, said spirit and is a mixture of power and water. So I'm just doing. A substitution. It doesn't make sense for your position to be applied here. You've truly in your in your wording in your question. You've renamed spirit to be power before you added in. I have to literally break down your semantics. I've already said to you very clearly. John three five. The, Jesus directly tells us if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of water and spirits. That's a stark gotcha. contradiction to what the scriptures tell us. Genesis two seven, First Corinthians fifteen. Earthy man is born from the earth. That's a mortal, perishable body, earthy. If you want an immortal, imperishable body, you have to have one born of spirit. That's all I'm saying, bro. It's, it's not that hard. You will breathe the breath of life in your dirt, dust, mortal body. At the resurrection, you're going to have one made of water, and the, the power spirit of God is going to be breathed in you to animate that so that you have an immortal body. This is the John 3.16 promise, the fulfillment of it in an ontological way. Uh, if we must be born of water and the spirit and the spirit is water and power, then how can it be that we must be born of water and the water and power? You're, you're just read. You're uh, okay. You're, you're shuffling the words around to try to make an argument that I didn't even claim. I, I've tried to explain it multiple times and if you don't, it's okay, but maybe we can move on to a different topic if, because I'm just yeah, repeating it's too myself. Tough for you. I get it. You know, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if you say this is equal to that, that's what you say. I ask you ver verification that that spirit is power and water. That's what you said. I was asking, you know, if you'd have modified it or if you'd say, well, you know, let me, let me adjust You're it. modifying it. I didn't say that. You're modifying it. I said very clearly at the resurrection, you, in order to receive the kingdom of God and inherit it, you must be born of water and spirit instead of the dirt and of the earth spirit? and spirit. I continually, the power is... of God, the power of God. No, you said spirit is power and water. Now you're changing. That's what, that's what you said when you tried to redefine it semantically. I'm saying I we should probably you. move on because it's I already asked you, you said that's what it was. Six times now. Yeah, you, okay. you, you. I've redefined it for you. I've clarified right. your misunderstanding okay. three times. Right. Can we, can we yeah. move on? We should move on. Sure, let's move on. Let's go to Psalm 116.4. I'm going to ask you a question. Or tell you what, right. I, I've been asking questions, but oh, you want to do that one? 
Are you familiar with Psalm 116.4? Call upon the name of Yahweh. Okay. Yes, I've read it. What, what okay. question do you have about it for me? So call upon the name of Yahweh is only to Yahweh himself, God Almighty, right? The true living God, the one being who's God, right? Um, no, is that, is that right? it's the authority of Yahweh no? over Israel. And no, it's the authority of Yahweh over Israel. That's very, very understood in Scripture that uh, then when, people, when men call on the name of the Lord, they're calling on the authority of God to come to their life, and he'll send messengers however he does it because he can't personally show up. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you would die. So he sends messengers in his authority to help mankind or to answer prayers or whatnot. So Good. I understand the so, concept of calling on the name of the Lord. Yes. So the phrase call upon the name of, of Yahweh is a phrase of prayer only to, to God Almighty, right? Is that right? I just, I, I just, well, the Father is who we pray to, like Jesus tells us, but those prayers are carried to him through his messengers. Like and scriptures Yahweh, I, I'm asking very something very specific, and, and yes, I am trying to set you up. I know you're being cautious, but the phrase "call upon the name of Yahweh," that's that's to pray Come right here. The authority, oh, Yahweh, the yes. authority of Yahweh. He says, "Yeah, you're calling upon His so, authority to save you, to hear your prayer, your confession, or whatever. You're calling upon His authority, so you, which is represents His name. That's what it means in the Hebrew. The Shem means so, His name, His authority, His character." Is the phrase call upon the name of Yahweh a prayer to Yahweh? Is someone praying it? In here? Yeah. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Is that a okay. prayer? Sounds like Psalm 35 also. It's wonderful. Yeah. Call upon the name of Yahweh for your salvation, and both in the, in the mortal and in the eternal. Yeah. It, so, it is, so the call upon the name of Yahweh is to appeal to God himself, right? It's to the authority of Yahweh. You're appealing it. You're calling upon his name, his authority. That's what that word means in Hebrew. No, no, no. Where's it, where does it say authority of? That's the definition of the word. Do you use definitions when you speak? Oh, boy. So I just ask, right. where, where does it say that? It doesn't say that there. Okay. Again, so you the literally just up. told me that you're not arguing in good faith. You said you're just trying to set me up. Don't Look, don't lie to me. Don't tell me I'm not arguing good about? faith. You need to stop lying and bearing false witness to me. You keep trying to tell you me just what told I'm me. Right. You're trying Hold to set on. me I'm up. Talking. I'm talking, I'm talking, and you're interrupting. Okay. You, I've called you on the carpet for this before. Don't be telling me what I am trying to do, that I'm not being genuine with you. I am being honest with you. And yes, one of the things I'm trying to do is to expose you and your false doctrines. That's what I'm trying to do. Don't say it's disingenuous because I'm being very, very right. honest with you. Don't tell me my motives. You're, you, you just Don't told me that. You it's said you're trying to set me up. I'm, of course, I'm trying to set you up. Okay. Aren't you trying to set me up? Do you want to show and expose what my problems are by asking questions certain ways? Isn't that what you're trying to do? Is it? I'm asking. I'm so not telling I'll, you. I'll, is it what you're trying will, to do? I will try yes, to it is, walk isn't forward it? in this. I will try to walk Sheesh. forward in this discussion, and believe okay. that you are arguing in good faith and that I was misunderstood. I don't lie. Okay. I'll make mistakes, but I'm not going to lie to you. Now, I, didn't say you lied. I called on the name of the Lord. That is a prayer right there. It's a prayer to God Almighty. Is that correct? Sure. Okay. In Zechariah 13 9, I will bring the third part of the fire. <clears throat> Uh, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. It's praying to, to Yahweh, right? 
That's right. So the, you're, are you familiar with the Septuagint? Yeah, we are. Okay. So the, the Hebrews translated this phrase, call upon the name of Yahweh, into the Greek, call upon the name of the Lord. Right? It's only used of God Almighty. Right? Okay. Do you understand the difference between the Masoretic and the Septuagint? Yes. As far as when they were created and, and the Masoretes themselves having... You understand the Septuagint itself was created from various Hebrew manuscripts? Yes, and there's different Septuagints also. So you there understand are. And the, that and the Pharisees commissioned three separate Septuagints in the first century AD so they could change some things. But regardless, it's still the name of the Lord is the authority of the Lord. He then answers that to be sending messengers to, to the earth. He doesn't okay. personally come down every time. So is, is that what you're arguing? Would you like to please go ahead and get to your question? Well, it's been difficult because you keep interrupting. Mm. I'm just asking simple questions. And I asked if you knew what the Septuagint was. Yes. Then the Septuagint, you go to different versions, they say the same thing. Call upon the name of the Lord, Hakurias. <laughs> okay? Hakurias, the Lord. Okay? That phrase is used yeah. in reference to Jesus. Are you aware of that? Who's, whose opinion that? is that? Is that your opinion? No, it's Paul's apostle's opinion. This is First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul called it as apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Matt, in this debate, I already told you, I believe Yeshua was pre-existent, pre-incarnately existing, and that he was, like he tells Pilate, he was his kingdom. He's king of a kingdom already. He was already king over the angels underneath his father's authority before he became in the womb of a woman. So I understand that there's there's psalms and passages even in Isaiah that I believe it's speaking and referencing the son and not always the father, depending on what the context is. The Hebrew, the New Testament writers give us a clue about this, like they do in Hebrews chapter one when they reference Psalm forty-five and Psalm one hundred two. They say that those were specifically about the son. So I'm I, again, yep. but the son only doesn't hear what he hears his father do and say. He into the authority of his father. This is this does not mean that they share some sort of undefined essence, which you've posited this whole time. It's like what it's saying here is equivalent to everyone everywhere who calls upon the name of Yahweh, Jesus Christ. That's your interpretation. The I, okay, I'm, I hear you. The, the phrase, the phrase, call upon the name of Yahweh is translated into the Greek, call upon the name of the Lord. That's the phrase, and it's only in reference to God Almighty. It's only referenced to prayer, adoration, and worship, and that phrase is used of Jesus. Why would Paul do that if he's not God Almighty? So now you're making a case that the Son is actually God Almighty and not subordinate as the Son. Is that what you're saying? Because you sound like a modalist right now. No, uh, it has to do with an issue of, of ontos nature versus... Which is what I've been trying to ask you to define this whole time. If can you I, could just define you can it. let me finish? Come on. Okay. You, you keep doing this. You keep interrupting. I, I'm, a, I'm answering you, and you keep ignoring the answer, and then you go on. The reason I believe you're ignoring the answer is because you keep interrupting my answer, which means you're not listening to my answer. You ask a question. I go to answer it. You stop me from answering, which means you're not listening to my answer. You ask a question, and that doesn't go the way you want, and you jump in. And I'm asking you a very specific this question. Is a, I, I thought we were going to have a kind of a back-and-forth conversation, but I didn't realize it was going to be such a structured, I speak, now you speak, I speak, now you speak. So my bad. I, I'm just trying to feel your flow. No, it's not an issue. It's an issue of politeness. And you have 
repeatedly interrupted me repeatedly. Okay. Okay. I'm just asking for the same politeness. That's all. Uh, you've not been polite at all, Matt Slick. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking. So if last question for the whole, I think we're about to leave this segment because uh, Marlon's on screen. So last question for you and for anyone in the audience. Um, can I mean, you, you've told me tonight that you don't believe that God has an actual body, but yet he shares an ontological nature with the sun. And this is the crux of the Trinitarian argument of co-substantiation. I'm just asking for a simple definition of, of that substance. What actually is it? And even if you don't have an answer for me tonight, email me later or whatever. I mean, I'm all ears. I just never seen anyone tell me an answer to this question. They always say, you're stupid. You don't understand Trinitarian theology. You can't define it. It's, it's a mystery. It's a paradox. And if Matt, if you're the first Trinitarian to ever actually have an answer on this question, I will be amazed. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask you to tell me the exact question. I'm going to type it out, your exact question. All right? What is your exact question? My hands are on the keyboard. Trinitarians teach co-substantiation. Trinitarians, hold on, teach co-substantiation yeah which is the shared ontological nature of the father son and holy spirit yeah what is that substance okay literally you can throw literally in there if you want what is a substance of God's ontological no, no, that, nature. That yes, thank you. Yes. So what is the substance of God's ontological nature? Okay. Uh, two things. He doesn't tell us. And two, your question doesn't make any sense. And three, three things. You don't know enough about logic to know why your question doesn't make sense. And I'm going to explain why. Trinitarians teach co-substantiation. That's a doctrine of equality in the nature, which is shared ontological nature. That's right. That's what the nature is, a shared ontological nature. Divine simplicity says that God is one thing, but that one thing is three distinct simultaneous co-eternal persons. You said, now you say, what is that substance? When you ask what the substance is, what you've done is introduced another term, which you've not defined what you mean by substance. So you've introduced the idea of Trinitarian, consubstantiation, shared ontological, and nature, and then with substance. The problem here is that you've not defined those terms in the questions. You've used them in Accurately. To ask what the substance of something is, is a problem. Because substance, when you understand, if you studied a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of logic, you understand that dealing with the term substance has different ways of being understood. So your questions are simply not precise enough and you don't understand these issues well enough. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to inform you that you need to study these things so that you don't make these awesome. continued mistakes. You don't ask what a substance yeah. is. Like, like, what is a substance of spirit? Mm. We'd only know what it isn't not what it is and when i ask you what something is and then i t type out exactly what you say and i apply it to where you say then all of a sudden it doesn't work then you want to go someplace else so i'm just showing you you're having logic errors you're making mistakes trying to point them out repeatedly mm -hmm. thank you for your answer brother i defer to marlon all right guys uh thank you for the lively discussion um this is see, this is one of the reasons why I like the formatted style, the the, the cross X rigid 
because it can get a little tight, you know, back and forth. <laughs> it's tough with the open discussion. I'm sure you guys understand why. Uh, so we're going to jump into yeah. the Q&A here. And we got a whole bunch of questions here. And we're going to start off with a super chat. Uh, thank you everyone for the super chats too. Really do appreciate uh, your support. And here's a first question, super chat. Uh, thank you so much. Not sure how to pronounce your abbreviation of your name, but we're going to go with it. Thank you so much for the super chat. How can Jesus be God if God is a Trinity and Jesus is only one person? What you think, the Matt? The issue here deals, the issue here deals with what's called equivocation, the fallacy of equivocation. So an illustration is to say that time is space, oh, excuse me, time is past, present, and future. Well, the present is time, so therefore the, t the present is past, present, and future. It's called the fallacy of equivocation, where the word changes meaning in the usage. So when we say um, that Jesus is God, we're, we're speaking of his divine nature. Then you say, but how can it be because he's a trinity? Then you're switching from the divine nature to the manifestation of that divine nature. So Jesus is God in the sense he has a divine nature. He has that divine quality, the, the divine nature within him, hypostatic union. And uh, the Trinity is the overarching aspect of what God is. And the second person became one of us. So his divine nature is God or divinity. That's why I say Jesus is divine. I prefer that because then it, it um, gets rid of the, the fallacy of equivocation, which often occurs with that kind of question. All right, Sean. Um, was this directed towards Matt's side? I, I think this yeah, it's a, uh, I forgot to explain. So the Q and a portion will allow both of you guys to interact with the question. You guys get one minute each. And if you guys can, okay. please don't interrupt the one that when they're, when they're going through the dealing with the question as well. Well, um, thank you, Marlon. I would define this, uh, mm -hmm. terms in this question. And when you're defining God and when you call Jesus God, like the father does in Psalm 45, six and seven, um, I would define it as what the definition for the Hebrew and the Greek are for that word, Elohim in the Hebrew, Deos with Theon in the Greek, and that's for a heavenly being, a divine, immortal being. And that's how you understand there can be a hierarchical nature of authority within those definitions. That's how the Father can call his son God in Isaiah 9, 6, you know, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Also, that word Father is used in Job 19 and Psalm 40, or Genesis 45 in reference to a ruler, just like the word God is used in reference to a ruler. It's a commonplace idea in the old ancient world, uh, in ancient cultures. So, All right. so that's how Jesus okay. can be called God, but yet he doesn't take part in some special undefined Trinitarian nature. All right. And here, barely read that question. All right. Here's another super chat. Thank you so much for the super chat and the support. Question for both. Sean said the nature of both God and angels are made of spirit. If they share in nature, do they also share in essence? Why or why not? This is what I was trying to, you know, work out with Matt earlier about, you know, defining nature and essence, whether synonymously or separately. Um, and from my understanding, it seems as if Trinitarians use it synonymously. Um, and so the essence is the co-substantial concept of what is the substance of the nature of God. And so this is what I was trying to say. They're made of the nature. The substance is their spirits. Now, if you're using the definition of the word nature as a far as opposed to his personality traits, his, his character, his divinity, as the definition of that word is actually used, 
then you're talking about how obedient he was to the father or how sinless he was in his divine nature. Um, but you just have to figure out which, which definition the questioner is using. All right, Matt. Well, let's see, uh, the nature of, uh, got my mouse over it and a window came up. Hold on the question. Come on. Sorry, I put my mouse down. Oh, there, oh, it just came up again. Uh, so I can't read the whole question for both Sean and the nature of both God and angel. Oh, there it went away. Are made of spirit. They share the same nature. In uh, If they share yeah, in nature, do they share the essence? If, uh, it depends on how you would define a few terms, but if you were to say, you know, from his perspective, if you were to say, I'm not attacking him, I'm defending him at this point, because you have to be very definitive in what you mean by the terms. But if you're going to say that both angels, for example, created beings and God, uh, have the same essence of spirit and, um, uh, our spirit, which is power and water, then the implication is that they have the same form the question that would have to be asked is what is inside that form is that uh, are both of them housed in a form but internally they're different and that's what would have to be ferreted out with the question more all right and here is another super chat here thank you so much alex for the support I would like to ask, Sean, how do you deal with Psalms 139, 7 through 12? If God has a human body and genitalia and arms and hands, as you said in the beginning. Do uh, you mean the passage where the psalmist is saying, where can I flee from your spirit? If I make my bed and shield, it's there. If I go to the heights of the heavens, it's there. I mean, that's talking about the power of God permeating all creation. It's not talking about his physical, his physical body that he sits on the throne with that the, the, all the prophets saw. So, I mean, that's, I guess it's a, I guess I don't quite understand the formation of the question. It seems like there's a lot of assumption inserted into that question. So right. I've repeatedly tonight said that God, the father has a body and his power is called his set apart spirit that he sends out to all creation. It keeps everything alive. All right. Uh, Matt. Um, move this over here. There we go. So, uh, yeah, it would be a difficult issue. Uh, believe it or not, you see, I can argue both sides of things because I, I do a great deal of logic and when I think. And I try and think critically. And if I think he's making a mistake, I'll point it out. But if I think the question doesn't represent his position, I'll point that out right as well. His position, from what I understand, not trying to misrepresent or anything, that the spirit of God is the thing that is, is universal. And that this is what the Unitarians will say generally is that, and Joy Dubs and some others, but anyway, they'll say that God, uh, anyone who says he has a corporeal kind of a location, that he's omnipresent, by not by himself, but by the uh, proximity of the spirit of God, which goes out. And that's what I understand. I'm not trying to misrepresent him. If you say, no, it's not my position, then I would apologize. I'm trying to understand his position. But uh, That's fair, Matt. I agree. Whole... Oh, well, thank you. But the Spirit of God uh, is also called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, Spirit of Truth. Holy Spirit is referred to uh, in attributes of personhood by who and he and himself. Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit loves, has a mind. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit knows, has awareness of goodness, can be lied to, can be tested, makes overseers, can be a witness, and can be resisted. The Holy Spirit teaches, intercedes, leads, gives life, filled by, 
etc. These are attributions, not of a force that's uh, a present and that's impersonal, but um, something that uh, is, is has personhood, as the scriptures clearly teach. And that's on my article, I was just looking through the article on Karm, verses showing identity, ministry, and personhood of the Holy Spirit. So. All right. Uh, I thought I saw another one here. Hold on, guys. Let me get this real quick. Uh, also, Matt, um, based on some one. of your responses to me, it seems as if there's a little bit of a lag between us. Well, if there's a lag, now I'm going to say, be, I, look, I'm really trying to be fair as all <laughs> possible, all possible. If there's a lag, that could account for why you'd be speaking over me so much. Okay. That's what I'm, and, I'm you know, trying to pick the, that up right now because I, yeah, I think there is a lag yet. Yeah. That's, so, that's hey, fine. I just want to extend, and, I, I want to extend an apology to you if it seemed like I was talking over you too much because I think okay. I'm getting a kind of a two or three second delay and I think you're done speaking, but you're not, you're just taking a big breath or something. That's right. perfectly acceptable, and, and it, that might be what's is, what it is. So apology accepted. My apologies out to you, too. We just have to work better next time. Okay, well, that's all. It's all good. All right, here's another question here. Super Chat, thank you so much. Wilkins for the Super Chat. Question for Matt. If spirit is not material, how did angels show up in Genesis 18 and literally eat food with Abraham? because they could manifest in, in physical form. The being the nature of spirit doesn't mean they, they don't have the ability to appear in a different way than what they are in manifestation. That's all, that's what uh, theologians have said for centuries. All right, Sean. Um, like I've said since the beginning, uh, spirit is a real tangible thing. It's what Yeshua's resurrected body exemplified. That's why he literally offered for them to touch him. It's a real thing. We will eat real food in heaven. The marriage supper of the lamb takes place after the resurrection. It literally says the slaughtered oxen is prepared for the meal. That's a real animal that we will digest and eat. Um, Jeremiah 31, 38. There's a whole bunch of places all throughout the prophets to talk about Zion and the kingdom come and how we'll be rejoicing in the fruits that are harvested and the animals, the lambs, the goats. Um, it's a real place. It's a real eternity. And I just want to encourage believers with that and, yeah, I'm done. All right. And here is another super chat. Thank you so much, Michael, for the support. Matt, if the Greek word theos means God, then why is Satan called theos God in 2 Corinthians 4 4? Is Satan part of the Trinity? No, the word God has a semantic domain, and a semantic domain means that a particular word can have different meanings in different contexts. So the semantic domain is a total realm of that meaning. The word green, for example, can mean envy or money or sick or uh, envy, I think envy already, or newbie. So God has different usages in different contexts. And so to say that theos, which is We'll get into what the Greek is, uh, means God. Well, it does, but it, you know, the God of this world, you know, and and Second uh, Corinthians four four, it doesn't mean he's part of the Trinity in the divine sense. It's just uh, the word is just used that way, and it's even used of uh, of those which are not gods by nature. And you can go to uh, Galatians four eight nine when you did not, when you served when you did not know God, you served by nature those which are not gods. And so the word God there is the same theos, a de declension of it actually, but it's the same one, and it's actually saying it's not. God. So it has a semantic domain. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I, th I think he's done. 
Um, so yeah, I've been explaining God uh, throughout this whole time. So it's just, again, an angel, even though he's rebellious, he still was originally created as a heavenly being. And so um, he, it would, he was a ruler before he rebelled because all angels are rulers over mankind. Um, but now, obviously, he's uh, evil. He's the dragon seeking who we may devour. So we would not ever give him authority like we do the father and the son. But he still can be referred to as a theos appropriately, according to his definition. All right. And here's a question. Thank you, the Knights of God. Appreciate the support. Appreciate it. Colossians chapter 115, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, creature, so the Father is not invisible? A corporal being made of water and power? Sounds like Mormon theology. Now, Sean, I think that's sort of, I think that's uh, directed towards you. Probably, probably directed to me, yeah. Um, it seems like all Trinitarians either want to call me Jehovah's Witness or Mormon. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, this one is, you know, this is post-resurrection. Colossians 1.15 is post-resurrection, speaking about a resurrected Yeshua who's given all authority over the church. Um, and so he's going to have all authority over the earth as well when he returns at his second coming. But right now he's over the ecclesia. And so this would this is why he's considered the word firstborn is a reference of title and authority that you see in the Old Testament. Um, and then that's why he would be considered. Um, this is this is what's promised of him is that he could be firstborn over every creature. Um, the father is only invisible according to the definitions of those terms because he's in heaven above and we can't physically see him in our mortal bodies where we are now. That's why he sends messengers that we can see and interact with on the earth below. Um, and yes, the father has a corporeal being. It is only, it is only, I can't stress this enough. It is only after the third century that quote unquote early church fathers started claiming that the, the God himself does not have an actual body. Now, that was not originally scriptural doctrine. They pulled that from Kabbalistic Judaism. So I just want to remind folks of uh, the history of some of these doctrines. Mormons, by the way, they believe in a deification of ascension that happens over with different people. So that's a completely different ontology. So they should study Mormonism before making accusations. All right, uh, Matt. Well, I've been studying Mormonism off and on since 1980. I know it quite well, and, and they teach God as a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man. And uh, he's about six feet tall. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach some of the things you were saying, too. That, you know, Jesus is a created thing, and he was the first created thing uh, from before. But what's really actually curious when I talk to you about is eternal generation. I'm not sure I understand your position correctly. But nevertheless, that's why they're, they're, they're bringing it, because you have mixtures of those kinds of things. That's all. I, I could comment about stuff, but that's just why they're saying that. <clears throat> all right. And here it is. <clears throat> Let's see here. We have another super chat. Thank you, Michael. I think we just did that one. Never mind. Don't worry about that one. All right. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Appreciate the support. If Trinity is true, who is Lady Wisdom? And why was she in the beginning as well in creation? Four in one. I'm not sure what the four in one means, but yeah, four uh, in wisdom one. Wisdom and the Trinity. That's what they would probably wow, say. Gotcha. I'm sure that's aimed at gotcha, me. Gotcha. Yeah, it's out of, okay. out of Proverbs 8. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses use that kind of argument. The Christadelphians do too. But uh, it's just a, Proverbs is poetry. And it doesn't mean we can't believe what it says, but it's poetry. And wisdom raises her head. 
Well, it's just a personification. Wisdom is an abstraction. We don't put wisdom in a jar. You take a picture of it, put it in a, you know, weigh it. It's an abstraction. It's something that occurs in the mind and the heart. And so it's just given, a, you know, a personification, just like Paul does with sin at the end of, of Matthew, of Romans 7. That's all that's going on. And so Lady Wisdom is just a personification of wisdom itself. Uh, um, that's all. Okay. <clears throat> no biggie. All right. Uh, Shine. Okay, can I interrupt? I I'm going to get some water. I can. I'm going to keep hearing, but I need to go get water because I've been coughing. I can keep hearing everything mm -hmm. you say. I'll be so. That's why I'll be gone. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with him. It's a very simple. There's lots of um, personification of scripture. Of, I mean, Jerusalem is called an Ariel at one point, which is like a lion. Um, the New Jerusalem is referred to as mother. You know, in, in Galatians four twenty six, so it's a personification as well. And I just also would love to, you know, extend since my uh, uh, my opponent here is is speaking to me through his answers, I'll go ahead and speak back to him and just remind him that um, he believes ninety nine percent of what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe as well with Catholic doctrine. It's only on the topic of the Trinity, which is their main point of contention. So, broken clocks are right twice a day. Doesn't it doesn't mean a false equivocation is needed. Wow. Right. And here is another question. This question is for you, Sean. Uh, super chat. Thank you so much for the super chat. Uh, Sean, do you think God shares the same nature with Satan? If you're defining nature as whether they're a spiritual being, yes, God created all the spiritual angels of the same substance that he is. They're called spirits. Jesus in John 4.24 directly tells us God is spirits. Yeshua, resurrected and glorified, which is what we're promised, became spirits. All ministering angels, of which Satan is a rebellious one, are called spirits. So I've been emphatically repeating that all throughout tonight. Um, thank you for the question. All right. Yeah, I can respond. Okay. I'm sitting down here with the water. Um, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say what spirit is. It says what spirit is not. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have, Luke 24, 39. Uh, God is ontologically different than created order. There is a God, you are not him. Uh, there, the angelic realm has a different order, different class, different everything. However, if you were to define spirit as a non-corporeal some, something, but you can't really define its ultimate essence, then you could categorize both God and angelic realm and even humans in the same area. This is why the definitions are really important. And since we can't get in and know the ontos, we can only know the properties of the ontos, then we would have differentiation. We go into the scriptures, we get into more deep theology, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an interesting question, but uh, basically God is a different kind of substance than the angelic realm, a different kind of thing. He alone is God, alone is divine, alone possesses holiness and the creatures don't all right and here is a super chat here thank you once again for the support why is there two mercy seats described in ezekiel 43 i don't know sean uh, i'll go first that's actually only in the septuagint uh, translation there describes a, a bigger mercy seat and a smaller mercy seat. That's because the father and the son, just like in Revelation 2, 25 through 28, Yeshua tells us he overcame and he sits on his father's throne, just as if we overcome, we can sit on them with that throne. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be a massive bench 
like it's a basketball, the side of a basketball court, and we're all sitting on one big long throne together. It just means that that's why you have the depiction of two different thrones in the Old Testament, um, which because Ezekiel 43 is a millennial reign contextual setting. So this is where the son is reigning over the nations as prophesied of him under the authority of his father as first Corinthians 15, 27 and 28 details. And so that would make perfect sense that the father sits on the bigger mercy seat, which is the throne. The son sits on the smaller one and there is no third throne for the Holy spirit because it's Trinity doctrines man-made. All right. Uh, Matt. Yeah. I only know of one mercy seat. So, um, that's all I would say. And the reason the Holy Spirit is seated in that place is because such Trinitarian theology would, would require a third throne. But that's not what Trinitarianism would require and what it teaches. It's a misrepresentation. I can get into the theology of that some other time, but it wouldn't require that. All right. Uh, here is... All right. Uh, thank you once again for the super chat, Wilkins. Appreciate it. Question from Matt. What verse say the father cannot have a body? No verse in the Bible says, quote, the father cannot have a body. Uh, so just like the Bible never says Jesus is God or Jesus is a prophet. The issue is, uh, what does the scripture say? We have to deduce certain things. Jesus says God is spirit, John 4, 24, and spirit does not have flesh and bones. You see, I have Luke 24, 39. So we know that the father does not have flesh and bones because that's what he says. So what is spirit? Well, no one knows what spirit is. I've been doing radio for 18 years, and every now and then people say, well, what is spirit? And I'll say, we can't tell you because no one knows. The Bible doesn't say it. Doesn't say this is what spirit is, so we don't know. But uh, the Father dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. First Timothy six sixteen, and when we look at that, we can't say he won't be able to be seen or anything. That's what the Bible says. So any visions or seeing of him isn't the Father. It always has to be something other than the Father, because that's what Paul the Apostle says. He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So therefore, the personification issues of the hands and feet of the Father cannot be because no one can see them. That's what the Bible says. We have to harmonize them all. I know how, but that's what the Bible says. All right, Sean? Okay. Yeah, I, um, I would agree with the first part of his answer. There are no scriptures that say the Father cannot have a body because the Father uh, has been detailed to us to have a body in multiple places in scripture. And we're told by Yeshua that body is spirit, just like the angels are made of spirit and they have bodies, just like resurrected Yeshua is a life-giving spirit now and he has a body. In the same way, we're promised to have a glorified spiritual body at the resurrection as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15. And he even specifically calls it its own version of flesh. And I've tried to point this out to my brother uh, tonight on this multiple times, uh, but if it talks about the two different types of fleshes, the different glories of different things. And so he keeps trying to claim the scriptures do not claim that spirit has its own body or flesh or bones, but it's referenced as its own type of flesh. This is why Yeshua can say, touch my flesh in a glorified spiritual body, because we take our definitions from scripture and not from Gnostic beliefs, which claims God is incorporeal. We take our definitions from scripture. God has a body. He made us in his image. We're going to be able to hug the father at the resurrection. He's a literal physical person. That's why he has a throne. He sits on. I'm done. All right. And okay. Uh, let me see here. All right, Matt, this is for you. No, that's just for this is for Sean. Thank you for the support. Animal lover. Appreciate it. 
Sean, who is the Holy Spirit? If you believe he is an angelic being, do you think he could be Michael or Gabriel? My Muslim uncle believes the Holy Spirit is the angel of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. I've, I've said multiple times tonight uh, that the Holy Spirit is the power of God that permeates all creation, but he also can focus it for gifts of the Spirit uh, or to work miracles. And so it's not, it doesn't have its own personhood in a body. It's directed by the Father, as 1 Corinthians 12 tells us directly. And that's how he chooses to pour out what gifts he will through his, the power of his Spirit. And that authority was then given to the Son at the resurrection, uh, as Peter preaches in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, 33 and 34. Um, it's not its own body. It's not a physical person. It's not the angel Gabriel. It's the power of God sent out to, to do ministerial work throughout creation. All right, Matt. Well, just to repeat, go to my website, karm.org, look up verses showing the identity, ministry, and personhood of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, is referred to as a who, as a he himself. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit loves. Uh, the Holy Spirit has a mind and speaks. There's many places where he speaks. He knows, uh, has an awareness of goodness. Um, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, and to us. Uh, it can be lied to. Uh, can be tested. Uh, <clears throat> and it's, so many, it's just a force. It just those, none of those make sense. And uh, so, yeah, the Holy Spirit is is the third person of the Trinity. It's the only way to make sense of uh, the revelation of Scripture about the Holy Spirit. All right. And here is a question for. Let me see. Question for you, Sean. Thank you for the super chat, Alex. Is the Holy Spirit God, and how could you how would you describe the Holy Spirit? Also, can you explain why you have a study book on on first e, on one Enoch or Enoch one or um, one Enoch? the Holy Spirit? Yeah, first Enoch. Um, like I've tried to explain tonight, that the word God is a definition. So the Holy Spirit is God, the Father's Spirit which now the son through his priestly authority role has access to give out in gifts of the spirit. It God's spirit is not a part of a triune personhood within one substance or one essence. They're not co-substantial. That is a man-made doctrine. So therefore, according to the Trinitarian definition of God, the Holy spirit is not of the same essence of the father and son. It is the father's power. <laughs> so of course, with that power flows out of him, his goodness, his character that goes to, to keep all things alive and, and offers gifts of the spirit. Um, and yeah, I, I wrote a commentary on first Enoch because uh, many branches of Christianity believe it's scripture. I believe it's scripture. The ancient Hebrew literature says it's scripture. The early church fathers said it was scripture. So I wrote a commentary book on it. All right, Matt. Yeah, it's a whole other topic about Enoch. It's not scripture, but that's another topic. Uh, again, the Holy Spirit teaches, knows, is self-aware, speaks, has a mind, uh, loves. I urge you, brethren, by the, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit. I mean, I, you know, it'd be interesting, I think, to have a debate on is the Holy Spirit a person or not, according to scripture, or have the attributes of personhood. Obviously, he does. Like me grieved, loves, has a mind. Uh, so uh, this um, is very strong support for the doctrine of the Trinity. Very strong support. Go ahead. All right. 
and matt and here's a question for you thank you for the super chat once again wilkins appreciate it matt why does jesus say he has flesh and bone in luke 24 this is after his resurrection when he has when he has a glorified spiritual body Ghosts don't have flesh and bones as you can see i have luke chapter 24 verse 39 because he's raised from the dead in the very same body he died in had retained the crucifixion wounds and uh no blood notice notice he said doesn't have flesh and blood, but flesh and bones. That's a, there's a significant reason he said that. His blood was offered out on the cross. But that's all. It's because he was resurrected. As First Corinthians 15, 35 through 45 talks about. And Jesus prophesied that he would be the one raising his own body in First uh, in uh, John 2, 19. So he did. And it had the, the, the wounds. And uh, the, he retained those wounds. So at his resurrection, that's what the effect is. That's what it is. That's why. All right. Sean? All right. um, I think the statement is self-evident. I think our brother Matt here is uh, grossly misinterpreting 1 Corinthians 15 since it literally calls Yeshua a life-giving spirit after his resurrection. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. Even Paul goes out of his way to explain the two different natures. One's earthy, one's spiritual. And he calls Yeshua a life-giving spirit, not made of the dirt anymore. He did not reanimate his gruesomely tortured dirt body. He has a glorified body. That's how he can disappear through locked rooms, reappear. That's how he can ascend to heaven in Acts 1. This is the promise of the covenant, and this is exactly the conversation Yeshua is having with Nicodemus in John 3, to which he then has to, I would pass on uh, our Lord and Savior's admonition to Nicodemus, to my brother Matt, that how can you be a self-proclaimed teacher of Israel and not understand these most basic things? This is the promise of the covenant. It's the resurrection. We do not get back our dirt bodies. We get a glorified spiritual body. Please study Romans 8, 11 through 19. I have and I all do. Right. All right. All right. All right. So we're going to have a couple more questions here and then we'll wrap it up. All right. So another super chat from the Knights of God. Appreciate the support. Appreciate it. Gnosticism has been thrown around mm -hmm. a lot. Can either please define some common beliefs of Gnosticism in regards to God the how you pronounce that guys Dumerge, etc sean is wrong yeah the demiurge demiurge etc uh sean is wrong yeah uh i don't know who yeah. wants to define narcissism <laughs> first go ahead man all right in. i'll pick somebody i ain't answering i'm gonna pick somebody. <laughs> i got some of my job to pick somebody i've been all defining right, it all night yeah sean you want to you want to go ahead and throw your definition out there man yeah, it's uh, they they believe in the Old Testament God was evil, and that um, they believe that He uh, is non-corporeal, <laughs> just which is where the Kabbalists pick it up, which is where the Catholics picked it up. They believe that um, um, they believe in this idea of negation theology, and this is what many of the early quote unquote church fathers were so enamored with. This was what also Maimonides who codified some of the foundational beliefs of Judaism was also enamored with. And this is this philosophical principle of homoousius, which we see people chanting in the crowd tonight, uh, that they believed that the substance of God was unknowable, was a mystery, could not be defined, but could only be expressed or explained by what it's not. We've even heard our brother Matt say that multiple times tonight. It's literally the very fundamental textbook definition of ancient Egyptian negation theology that Aristotle also preached. It's what Gnosticism birthed out of. This is what the Hindus also teach about Brahma, like I said in my opening statement. 
So I would strongly encourage our, my brother tonight to repent of his philosophical captivity and start believing the plainly written words in scripture. All right, Matt. Uh, I'll urge you to repent from your antichrist theology, because if you die tonight, you'll go to hell. Gnosticism is a collection of ideas that were from 2000 years ago, where generally the idea was Gnostics knowing mind and things like that, that there was special knowledge that was needed in order to be saved. And that God was too pure to get involved with the material world. So he created demiurges or lesser beings, lesser gods who then worked in the world. And that you had to have certain knowledge, certain things about that. And they got to be very, very deep in their esoteric uh, leanings and, and things. And that's what Gnosticism is. And First John is written um, in part to refute Gnosticism uh, because the Gnostics would deny that God was in flesh. And who else here denies that Jesus is God in flesh. Go ahead. All right. All right. So we'll get, let me see. I'm to find at least two more questions and that'd be it. Um, all hey, right. Matt, real quick on your website, you, you might want to remove Acts 829 as a character attribute of the Holy Spirit, because in verse 26 of that same chapter, it says it's an angel of the Lord, not the actual Holy Spirit. The Spirit said to Philip, Just go up and join his, his chariot. So when it says the Spirit said to Philip, it was not the Spirit speaking? Read verse 26. It says it's an angel. I just, angel I just thought I'd help you Philip out. Philip saying, get up. Yeah, I said, get up, go south of the road. Okay, he does that. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of uh, Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge. Right. And then he's returning and sitting on this chariot, was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this. So you can't make the mistake, right. uh, or you yeah. shouldn't make the mistake of saying that the angel who told him to go do angels something. Are okay. All right, guys, let's, let's, let's knock out these last couple questions, and we're done. We're, we're done. All right, Sean, this is for you. Explain why Hosea 12, 4 to 5 say the angel who wrestles with Jacob was the name of Yahweh. Well, it actually says that, uh, again, like we've talked about, the Masoretic translation is going to always translate every mention of the word God as Yahweh 99% of the time. I mean, this is a huge contention amongst uh, people that are, quote unquote, translation purists, uh, people that are that are KJV only versus, you know, modern, more modern translations where there's a, the, the Masoretic text translated into English and in the most dominant version throughout all the world is the KJV. Now um, they replaced the, the name of Yahweh with Lord in capitals to represent Yahweh. But the Masoretic text itself was created in the eighth century, approximately ninth century AD. It's not the original translation. It was a Masoretic translation and they were people that, I don't even know what they translated because I can't see the original Septuagint. All I know is that regardless if it says that Jacob wrestled with G-O-D, which is the word Yahweh in the Masoretic, it's always what it's always going to be. In the Septuagint, it's going to be the word Kyrios, the word Lord. It's always going to be translated as a concept of God. But again, Exodus 33, the rest of Scripture tells us, our, my brother Matt's are also accurately arguing that we cannot see God while in the flesh tonight. Uh, this is, you can only see God and once you're not in the flesh and you get a spiritual resurrected body. Jacob is wrestling with an angel. That's the whole point of all the angels constantly revealing themselves to the patriarchs. It's not God Almighty himself. And I, and I would reject this second century notion of that it's a pre-incarnate Christ showing up everywhere in the Old Testament. It literally says it's angels. All right, Matt. 
Yeah, I did not say that uh, we can see God except you know, only while in this flesh. He dwells in unapproachable light who no man has seen or can see. That's what the word says. I believe exactly what it says. And uh, no, it's not a misrepresentation to say that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Just think logically. If God Almighty is being seen, but it's not God the Father, then who's the God Almighty? When people want to start saying it's angels, that's the only way to get out of it. They want to insert that whole thing in there. It's a representation. It's an angel. But if you read the text, sometimes there's angels, and sometimes it's God. And it's not God Almighty the Father. It's God Almighty the Son. Perfectly consistent with Scripture. All right. And this will be the final question of the night. I know there's a lot of questions out there, so I'm sorry, everyone, for not being able to get to all the questions. But uh, the Super Chat's killed tonight. Um, so... This would be the final question here, and this is for Matt. If Jesus is 100% God, why he didn't know about his second coming? I thought God is all-knowing. Um, I'm going to answer that. It's going to take a little bit because it's a it's a wedding feast. But just as a cross-reference, you can look it up in Revelation 19.12. Jesus has a name on him that no one knows except himself. If the idea of not knowing something means he's not God, then God the Father can't be God by that definition. So it doesn't work. Nevertheless, what is happening is it's a wedding feast issue. I'll go through it quickly. But the wedding feast would work this way. A father and a father, and yet a son and a daughter, and they'd make a pact or an agreement to be married. And then the wedding would usually take a, a year later. And then the son was to build a house onto the father's home. That's why Jesus says, my, my father's house are many mansions. I go to build a place for you. And then he'll come and get you with the trumpeters. And so they would get the trumpeters to come in, the fatted calf, the wine, the whole bit. And they would go and get the bride. But they wouldn't know when to get the bride because the father, who is uh, the authority in that home, in that culture, a very important figure, everyone would be gathered. Everyone would know. Everyone would be right there. And the bridegroom or the groomsman's, the groomsman's friends would say, when will your father tell you to go get the bride? Right. Everybody's waiting. The trumpeters are waiting. The, the winemakers there. The people are there. The bride isn't there because at, at her house. And then the, they would say, "Well, no man knows the day nor they are, but the Father alone." It's an idiomatic expression. I have the documentation on this, and that's from an ancient thing. And so then the Father would say, "Go," and they would just take off and go. And so it doesn't necessitate that the son didn't know, because it's an idiomatic expression dealing with the with the wedding feast. Not many people know about this. When I've spoken about this at different conferences, I've had Jews come up to become Christians who said they were very impressed. No Gentiles has ever repeated that to them. They asked me, where'd you learn it? And I said, I don't know. I just did sometimes. That's what's going on there. So if you want to say, well, it still means he didn't know, and he's not God, then you got to go to Revelation 19:12, where only Jesus knows the name of the Father, name of on Himself. Therefore, God the Father can't be God. So your sword cuts both ways. <clears throat> All right, uh, Sean. Uh, it's it's very simple. It's because the Son is not the Almighty. Uh, no matter how many times my my brother here tonight wants to insert that. <laughs> But that's just not the truth. That was that was a term that was made up in the fourth century by the arguing councils. They wanted to emphatically make sure people kept repeating the Son is also the Almighty, is God the Almighty, God the Son, God the Father. They keep using a essence definition of God instead of a hierarchical definition of God, instead of understanding the scriptural definition of the spirit of God is a spirit, not a undefined essence. The Bible defines it for us. So naturally the son does not know everything. He's under the command of the father. The son has never been in authority, never been 
equal in authority to the father. He's always been, just as a son always is to a father, he's always been under his father's authority. And so this is uh, emphatically told to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28. And um, you know, just hopefully that's important to know, as well as Revelation 19, where the name that no one else has is literally what Hebrews 1 is talking about because it means authority. It doesn't mean a literal pronounced etymological name. It means your literal authority. Yeshua has a higher authority than all the angels that no one else has, except for once he comes back, and that moment is about his second coming, he's going to raise the dead in Christ. They're also put into that Melchizedek priesthood with him to share in that name. This is what he references earlier in Revelation 3, but uh, it seems my brother doesn't like the definitions of the word name. All right. All right, guys, that is it. <laughs> you, <laughs> you guys can take a deep breath, man. Take a deep breath. You guys are okay, man. It's all right. It's going to be all right, man. But I thank you guys for coming on uh, and joining me in this episode of Gospel Truth, man. Um, I thought it was a fascinating discussion. Um, I learned some new stuff, uh, which is always the goal as a moderator. It's a control the scene and to learn something new. Um, and so... Before I let you guys go, uh, would you guys care to have some closing closing words? Go ahead. Sure. I, I just want to um, extend just a general uh, statement to my brother Matt here that I do believe that he is of the faith. I just think he's highly mistaken. Um, I, I don't discount him from his faith in Christ. And I think that uh, any Trinitarian that wants to uh, stand in the judgment seat of Christ should heavily reconsider how they're judging others because with those same weights and measures, they will be judged. So I just think that most Trinitarians um, who study this issue and defend it, they're zealous about it. They want to understand God. I give them that benefit of the doubt. I don't think they're being malicious. I don't think they're being intentionally divisive, but unfortunately the fruit that comes out of this doctrine creates division. And I would highly ask them to reconsider their doctrine, look at its history, read the definitions of the words in scripture and, um, Ultimately, if Matt's up for it, maybe we can do this again in the future. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks, Marlon, for having me on again. You'd think you'd have learned after the first or second time, but I guess that's okay. Um, but uh, no, Sean, I don't believe you are a Christian at all, and I, I don't say it with malicious intent. I'm informing you that you're denying the true God and the true Christ. Now, if you want to stay afterwards, we have some interesting conversations uh, we could, uh, but you deny him. I'm curious to know what you believe the gospel is. And I'm warning you, uh, not by my authority, I'm just informing you that you're denying who God really is and who Christ really is. I, and I will say this, I've never heard anybody come up with an conglomeration of ideas that, as, as, like you have. It's not a mockery, it's just like, wow, I've never heard that, that put together that way. But you don't know who Christ is. You don't know who the Holy Spirit Imagine is. Imagine believing the Bible. And you don't know. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons say the same thing. So the issue is, uh, mm. I'll just say this. Jesus is prayed to in the Bible. Jesus has all authority in the scriptures. He forgives sins. Go to the one who has authority to forgive sins. Ask Jesus to open your mind and the heart to scripture. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask Jesus to come and make his abode in you, John 14, 23. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Trust in no one else but him. I think that's a place where you got to start. Okay. All right, guys. I'm going to let you guys go. I appreciate you guys once again coming on. And both of you guys, I think, personally handled yourselves well. You know, obviously, you guys 
you know, you guys are both passionate about what you believe. So there's going to be some scratching and clawing a little bit, but I do think you guys, uh, overall handled yourself very well. Um, and I wouldn't mind getting you guys back on again, perhaps have a different discussion on a different topic. Because once again, I think you guys handled yourself. And so that said, I'm going to let you guys go. You guys go ahead and enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll be in contact. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Marlon. All right, guys. Take care. Shabbat.